Hello, everyone. Happy New Year, and welcome to Episode 6, Season 4 of Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. We've got some great guests coming up in the next few months, and I'm excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is a friend and colleague, Major Dean Long, United States Marine Corps. Our conversation with Dean ran several hours, so I decided to split the episode into two parts. This is part one. Here's Dean's bio. He graduated from Westfield High School in Houston, Texas in 2001 and enlisted in the Marine Corps in July of that year. He attended recruit training in San Diego, California. After boot camp and follow-on training at the Infantry Training Battalion, Dean reported to Company A, Marine Barracks, Washington, where he served as a ceremonial marcher. In 2003, Dean executed orders to Company I, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, for his first fleet assignment. He deployed from January 2004 to July 2004 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, OIF. On deployment, he led a fire team and rifle squad. In July 2004, Dean attached to Company A, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, and remained on deployment in support of OIF until January 2005. During this time, he served as a fire team leader and rifle squad leader. In January 2005, Dean reported to Company L, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines in Iraq, and remained on deployment in support of OIF until July 2005. During this time, he served as a fire team leader. In July 2008, and then again in July 2009, Dean attended Officer Candidate School to execute the Platoon Leader Commissioning Program. He earned a Bachelor of Science in International Affairs from the University of Georgia and commissioned into the Marine Corps as a second lieutenant in May 2010. He attended the basic school, TBS, from October 2010 to April 2011. Following TBS, he attended Infantry Officer Course, IOC, and graduated in September 2011. In October 2011, Dean reported to Company E, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. During this time at the battalion, he served as a rifle platoon commander and a company executive officer. He deployed in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit. In June 2014, Dean reported back to TBS to instruct Marine officers. During his time there, he served as the primary instructor for scouting and patrolling and as an instructor at IOC. It was during this time I met Dean. We became friends and started talking about decision-forcing cases. In 2017-2018, Dean attended the Expeditionary Warfare School, and then in June 2018, he reported to 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines. And during his time with the battalion, he commanded Company I and Weapons Company. He deployed in support of the Unit Deployment Program and the Marine Rotational Force Darwin Force Enhancement. In 2020, Dean reported to his present duty station, Marine Corps Detachment Fort Benning, to serve as the Detachment Executive Officer and the Maneuver Captain's Career Course Instructor. Without further ado, here's part one of our conversation with Dean. Okay, Dean, it's so great to have you on the show, man. I know it's been a while in the making, and I'm so glad you were able to, to make time to make this happen. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, Damien, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So I figure we'd jump into your interest in, in military affairs, military matters first, and then go through your career. First question is, you know, since I've known you, you've maintained a very serious, very consistent study of war and warfare. Where do your interests in military history, theory, education come from? So I've always wanted to be in the military, even when I was a child. Growing up, my father, he was not in the military. And he wasn't in the military because he couldn't medically qualify, to be honest with you. And he, he was of the age to where he could have been drafted and gone to Vietnam, you know. And, and it always kind of hung over his head that he, he didn't go and serve. And so that led him to read a lot 
about that conflict. And so I always saw my dad when I was growing up, always reading a book about Vietnam and either a history of it or memoirs of it. And I think just unknowingly, he was kind of building this interest in me too. So I would always be like, what is that? What is that? And I'd look at the books as a kid and stuff like that. And it really is from as young an age as I can remember growing up with action heroes like Rambo or what have you, right? right? I've always been interested in the military and then part and parcel of that became an interest in military history. Mm -hmm. And so I've always read military history books for, for a long time to where joining the Marine Corps and seeing, seeing the commandant's reading list, I kind of chuckled to myself because some of the books that were on there, I was like, I read that when I was like 12. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe I shouldn't tell anybody that. But I mean, and you know, when you're that young reading those books, like, how much are you really getting out of it? It's, it's more just sure. kind of like entertainment, right? Or, yeah, yeah. Exposure, but maybe there yeah. is great depth in understanding. Yeah, you're right. You know, so you're reading about, you know, General Eisenhower's decisions to execute Normandy. Like, as a 10-year-old or 12-year-old kid, how much are you really connecting with that? Right, so right, right. I think I found myself more drawn to these stories of combat, bravery in combat, overcoming adversity, also people experiencing you know, cowardice in combat and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So that tended to be what I wanted to read about and understand. And then I've noticed as I've gotten older and then become an officer and the longer I've been in the Marine Corps as an officer, I tend to read more with a focus on understanding what information did these key decision makers have mm-hmm. and then how did that guide them to make the decision they made. Yeah. You know? And then what lessons maybe can I pull from that to help me when I'm potentially sending people into harm's way? Yeah, yeah. So it, it sounds like the interest starts with your father, his interest in the Vietnam War. You're growing up around this. And then it expands from there. You're talking about Eisenhower. So, of course, World War II, was there a, a topic or subject or theme that really grabbed your attention as you were a kid? Or did you read widely? I think I read I read pretty widely, you know, really the topic would be dominated with probably something that was going on in the culture, you know, so uh, like Saving Private Ryan, right? Yeah. That movie came out. I can't remember how old I was, but I was old enough to go see it yeah. and kind of understand the context of it. So obviously that probably put me on like a World War II kick yeah. as well as I've always liked reading. So, you know, I'd go into a bookstore or something like that, go to the military history section, just something would jump out to me going back, you know, seeing um, that. As a kid, I, I bought books by, uh, you know, Dupuy <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and stuff. I did not know what I was walking into, right? Sure, sure. And then I still have them, you know, and I and I see it now and I'm like, oh, that's Dupuy. I right. bought that when I was, uh, whatever, 13. Yeah. And reading it now also and seeing how thoughtful that guy was. Sure. Uh, but I'd say as far as some general interests I have, I found that I've, I've always been very drawn to the Civil War. Yeah. And understanding the American Civil War. And things like that, because I think it had a tremendous impact, obviously, on our country. And the conflict was pretty unique, obviously, to America, but also kind of in history, too. Yeah. Yeah, And the Civil War is the topic features pretty heavily in in your cases. People don't know they will as we get into this conversation that you've designed, developed, taught quite a number of, of DFCs. And many of those have Civil War battles as the focus. Yeah, interested to to get more into that. Do you think the Marine Corps does a good job of exciting and educating Marines about military history, let alone Marine Corps history? I think the Marine Corps does a pretty decent job of leveraging Marine Corps history and educating us in it. 
when I went to the expeditionary warfare school, I reread first to fight that's on their curriculum, you know, mm -hmm. um, when I went to the basic school as a second Lieutenant, I had to read first to fight, you know, so as well as in all of our PME schools, I mean, we go over Marine Corps history. When I was in boot camp, we had to recite it chapter and verse, you know, it was part of kind of the, the rituals there of repeating knowledge and things of that nature. So as far as getting people to understand Marine Corps history, or, or at least know it, you know, I think that the Marine Corps does a decent job of that. Yeah. As far as getting people excited about it, history, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily, this isn't a cop out, Damien, but not everybody likes history, yeah. right? Like not everybody loves history, right? And so is it like the Marine Corps' job to excite everyone about history or maybe it's the those of us that are in the organization? And there's a lot of us <laughs> that like history and are excited about history. So let's try to infuse our subordinates or the people we're around with that interest. And I think that there are some inroads that can be made in the PMEs you conduct yeah. and things of that nature, leveraging history when you're addressing your units. One thing I did when I went to 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, and I know we'll talk more about this later, but whenever I talked to my company, I would try to bring in some something historical from the battalion or the company from the battalion's time in either World War II, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera trying to make the connection to the Marines that, hey, man, the billet you hold, team leader, rifleman, squad leader, people have held that billet in this unit for, you know, 75 years. So you you are standing on their shoulders and we're carrying on what they built. So using those things as tools to try to maybe get people interested about history or get Marines excited about history, I think is more kind of on us that enjoy history. I think that if if we could just focus on subordinates, we could get them probably more excited about history. I'm not saying they're going to be as um, enthusiastic about history as say like you or I are, yeah. but maybe we get them to crack open a book here and there and read yeah. about something military historically related and think about applying it to their profession. As an example here, what I've slowly been weaving my way through MCCC here with some of the students is they all have to write a battle analysis paper here. Mm -hmm. And so I've been telling my students like you have the perfect foundation for a class. Right there. Yeah. That battle analysis paper. Make a class out of it. Now you're ready to give a class or even multiple classes to your company when you pick them up. Yeah. There you go. And, and a lot of those guys don't like history, but at least I'm showing them that they can use this as a tool. Yeah. And all, all that makes sense and resonates with me. I think, you know, my question asking about exciting Marines about history, it really comes down to the central role that at least I think history should play in, in the education of, of Marines. The military profession is unique, as you know, in that you don't get to practice as much as, say, many other professions. And history is a reservoir of other people's experiences that we can learn from. So maybe it isn't so much excitement, though I think excitement is good. You want people to be interested in what they're learning and to pursue learning on their own, self-directed. But if you can at least as you're pointing out, leverage it and make it appealing, make it useful. That's really the goal, right? That's what we're trying to move people in the direction of, of getting better. And just a, a comment about Marine Corps' use of history as an outside observer, I've always seen the Marine Corps' use 
of history as unique, I think, compared to the other services. And there is a lot of, I think, attention paid and emphasis put on it. But I've also always been struck about, again, this is my view, the kind of surface level understanding that I think a lot of Marines have about the history or the myths that perpetuate. I'm thinking about the blood stripe and the battle of Chapultepec, Tufelhunden, Bella Wood. And there's just so much fascinating, factual Marine Corps history stuff out there that I don't know if we need the myths. I don't need, I don't know if we need all (laughs) these, like there's some pretty outrageous stuff that's happened and maybe we don't focus on it as much, but yeah. Any, any comments, reactions to, to either of those points? Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right. When you're bringing it to scale in such a large organization, it probably is going to be relatively shallow. You yeah. know? And so that's why I was alluding to what I was saying earlier is like, like Bella Wood personally doesn't interest me that much to do a deep dive into, right? Yeah. But if you're that person that wants to deep dive into it, do it and then try to find a way to then express that to other people, right? Like if you're a leader, if you're a squad leader, if you're a team leader, even if you're a junior Marine that, that is not in a leadership billet, you know, you're an E3 and below, or you're, or you're a junior officer, research Bella Wood. Yeah. Come up with a class on Bella Wood, but it probably shouldn't be just some rote, this is what happened at Bella Wood, yeah. but come up with a way to make it interesting for everybody and to present it. And yeah, some folks, some folks will be like, hey, that was kind of cool. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> yeah. some folks will be like, man, I'm really interested. I want to go learn more. Right, right, right. But I think that that's kind of, the way to go. I just don't, yeah, you're right. I mean, in boot camp, in OCS, in even the basic school, right? Like, are we going to have the time or the resourcing to do some kind of, hey, let's go deep dive into Bella Wood and talk right. about like Lieutenant Motivator and 2-6. Actually, I did, I did read a book about Bella Wood. What am I talking about? But anyway, <laughs> you know, and let's talk about this Lieutenant, yada, yada. It's like, maybe not in those echelons, but maybe when they show up to the unit, if people are excited about it. Yeah then they can, they can do that. Here's a, and I'll, I'll get off this soapbox in a moment, but an idea that I've advocated for a while is, you know, you look at OCS, go through OCS and they have these blocks of military history, Marine Corps history, right? And they're wave tops, but they're quite a bit to digest. I thought, well, we're not going to teach these people Marine Corps history in six hours, especially in a an environment as stressful as OCS, right? Yeah. So what if you replace those six hours with a series of miniature DFCs that are highlighting lieutenants and captains and sergeants and, and what have you at different points of Marine Corps history? So, hey, here's the raid on Nassau. Here are the Marines at Bull Run. And they're just kind of quick. They're snapshots. You talk about how the equipment has changed, what's stayed the same, and then you move on. So you get the decision-making, which I think is useful to a place like OCS, but then you also get these exposures to different points of, of the organization's past and hopefully encourage people, you know, for those people who are already historically inclined, like, oh, I, I didn't know that. It's really interesting. Let me go check that out. And then for those who aren't, oh, that's, you know, hey, I was put in the shoes of a, a Marine lieutenant in 1862 or 1943, whatever. Okay. I'm, I, I'd like to maybe research more about that. And then OCS can provide resources in the form of, you know, web links and audiobooks and whatever. And if you want to go research it, you can, you know, I've, I've long believed in the saying that education isn't about filling a pail. It's about lighting a fire. Right. And that's, that's what I think. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you talk about is, yeah. if you're interested in history, 
find a way to express that in maybe a compelling, appealing way and get other people involved and again, hopefully spark something in them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those TTPs you're talking about, I mean, I think that does sound good. It's just, I guess, the resourcing and bringing that to scale. I'm not saying that would be impossible, but it's just something that we have to, have to work through and look at. And I think to, to a degree, what you're saying is kind of like what I'm saying. I'm just saying maybe the onus is more on knowing your people and who likes to do this. Right. right? right. Trying to leverage that to co-opt everybody else to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know what I'm saying? No, I, I, I think that's a better approach rather than just trying to apply something to a group of people you don't know and what sticks sticks and what doesn't, uh, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah it totally yeah. makes sense. Dean, you enlisted in the Marine Corps in July, 2001. What led you to sign up and why did you want the infantry? Okay. So for the longest time, as I said, I wanted to be in the military. I didn't really know what that meant. All I thought of is in the military was like the U.S. Army. You know, there's this thing called the Army. Everybody's got one. I was like, I'm going to go in the Army. I'm going to go in the Army. I'm going to go in the Army. And this will probably be like totally counter to every other conversation you have with people, right? Where everybody's like, I was going to go to the Marine Corps, but right? <laughs> like, so I'm doing the opposite here. I was going to, I was going to go in the Army, but as cliche as it is. And everybody that's listening to this is just going to be laughing as soon as I say this. I saw the movie Full Metal Jacket, right? And there was something about the boot camp process besides all the horrific things that occur in there. And obviously, I have like a more nuanced view of that movie now as a 40-year-old man than I did when I was, you know, whatever, 13, 14, 15, 16 or something like that. Yeah, it was like, that looks tough. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, like, what is the Marine Corps? And so then I started, you know, reading and researching about the Marine Corps and what exactly they do. And as soon as I could, I reached out to a recruiter, basically, you know, the recruiter had his uh, table set up at our cafeteria in our high school, left him my information. I was too young at that point. I think I was 16. Mm -hmm. And the recruiter said, you know, I I filled out the card. I gave it to him. He's like, yeah, you're 16. I can't talk to you have a nice day, right? Like we'll be in touch. Yeah. I mean, it must've been the day after my 17th birthday or something like that. This, the recruiter calls me and I happened to be home and I happened to pick up the phone. Cause I was just like kind of your typical nineties teenager back then. Like I was always out running around with friends doing not good things with my life. Right. Mm-hmm. And happened to be home, happened to pick up the phone. Cause I never pick up the phone then because I was a dick and sure enough, it's the Marine recruiter. (laughs) I think a one in a thousand shot, I pick up the phone and it's the Marine recruiter. And this guy's calling me based off the information I gave him like over a year ago or what have you, or roughly a year ago. And so he, he's like, yeah, Hey, are you interested in the Marine Corps? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know? And then they showed up to my house and their uniforms and everything like that. Uh, It was the outgoing recruiter and the oncoming recruiter. You know, he's being trained. We sit down, they give me the whole spiel. We do the the tags of like, what do you want? What would you want out of life? And the right, right. And all this stuff and boom, 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 boom. Showing them what I want. And I mean, they're just like, they've got me, right? <laughs> they're like, we can give you this, this, that, that, blah, blah, blah. You want adventure? You want discipline? You want esprit de corps? This is the organization for you, right? <laughs> and so I was like, all right, when can I sign <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I swear it must have been a week or two later. I was down at the military entrance processing station 
Yeah. My folks had to sign like the waiver to let yeah. me sign up. I wasn't 18 yet, which they were, which they, you know, were deeply emotional about that, you know, not in a bad way, but just, you know, they were very moved. Right. Right? And so they signed the waiver for me to go. I go to MEPS, joined up, man, finished out high school and then went to boot camp the summer I finished high school. And you're in boot camp during 9-11, right? Yeah, correct. So we were in like the, the combat training phase. I think, yeah, we had completed our rifle range week and we were doing the combat training redo, kind of like, you know, the unknown distance shooting, mm-hmm. just a bunch of other stuff where we just stayed in the field for a week. And the entire time we were in boot camp, the drill instructors were saying stuff to us like, this is happening in the world. We may go to war. This is happening in the world. We may go to war. You know, and it's just, we weren't buying it. Right. Like, we're just like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, yes, sir. I, sir. Yeah, whatever. And then when nine 11 happened and again, we're out in the field. So, and we're in boot camp, So we're totally disconnected from everything going on. We're at the rifle range doing our unknown distance shoot. And all the senior drill instructors pulled their platoons in, let us all sit down. And they were actually letting us eat our MRE, like unimpeded, which was the first time they'd ever let us eat any food ever unimpeded, right? Mm -hmm. Like most of the times it was like, we were on a time constraint. You wouldn't get to eat everything. So I was constantly in a starvation mode during the entire time of boot camp, right? And we're eating our MRE. And it's just kind of like, man, this is weird. Like we get to eat food. Like that's how fixated we were on this. Everybody's starving. So we finally get to eat free of harassment. And this year, drill instructor sitting there, he's sitting on a stool, you know, as we're all around him and we're eating and he's like, all right, hey folks, like, hey, recruits or whatever. The country was attacked today. Terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center. There's thousands of people dead. We think there's probably over 10,000 people dead. And they flew a plane into the Pentagon and there's another plane that went down out in Pennsylvania. We're still trying to figure that out, but we think there's that this was a horrific attack on our country. And all of us are just like, as crappy as it is to say this, you know, it's like, all of us are just like, yeah, sure. Nobody, nobody believed this at the time. Um, We were just like, Hey, whatever you got to say, man, like I'm enjoying this luxury of eating food. (laughs) (laughs) You're in a different headspace than. Yeah. Yeah. Your your world revolved around getting chow, you know what I'm saying? Right. And just trying to survive to the next meal. And, and so, like, yeah, just nobody believed him. We could not believe it. We're just like, this is just one of these, these hoaxes they're just throwing at us, whatever. And so then later on that night, we did some type of night movement. And we went by the gate. And we noticed that all the guards, like there were more guards. They were wearing body armor. They had weapons, slung, like rifles slung and stuff like that. Kind of like what you normally see them now. But before, right. you didn't see them like that. Before it was just, you know, they were in camis with a pistol on their hip, yeah. you know, but now, now it's like, now it's very common to see people all body armored up with rifles slung and stuff like that. Right. And that was, it was like, wow, that's really unusual. And so that's when people started like, man, maybe something did happen. Maybe something did happen, you know? And, and there were rumors going around in our, in our little recruit company, which, you know, you could barely talk to each other anyway. So how these rumors spread is is hard to know, but Rumors of like folks that had family in New York 
but they weren't allowed to call home and stuff like that. So we're like, man, if this really happened, they let these people call home. Right. That's why this, that's why this isn't true. That's why this isn't true. And then when we got done with our training for the week, got out of the field, because I mean, you know, mind you, they, they didn't curtail anything. We just did our thing. Yeah. You know, we executed what we were supposed to execute, came back to the barracks, like on a Saturday or what have you. Sunday was the one day that it's not even a day. It was a few hours of the day that you were allowed to go to church. And then certain recruits were identified that could buy newspapers and they bought the newspapers uh, coming out of the chow hall. And that was when we saw this is real. You see the the photos of the planes smashing into the buildings. And it was like, you know, unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. Went back to our squad base. And there were like, there were people crying, you know, there were people very upset because of what had happened as well as, as well as, you know, a lot of us were like, well, what does this mean for our future? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a lot of us, you know, at that time it was, as you said, it was 2001. The last time there was been like major combat really was desert storm. And so, yeah, just a lot of us were, Wow. I, I thought that this Marine Corps is probably just going to be like, you know, I train up and I deploy, I train up and I deploy and then I reenlist or I get out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was kind of my generic plan going into this thing. And then, but then seeing all, seeing what happened on 9-11 is like, okay, something major is going to change here. What is going to happen? And then, yeah, obviously the, the rest is history, you know, that day yeah. obviously impacted my future and the rest of my life. At this point, had you already contracted as infantry? Were you open contract? Did this push you to infantry? Where, where were you as far as the MOS you, you wanted or had you know, been recruited for? I enlisted as an infantry contract. Like, I was a, a recruiter's dream. It's like, yep, I want to do it. I want to do infantry. They tried selling me on other MOSs because I scored relatively well on the ASVAB. And stuff like that. And, and I was just like, nope, nope, infantry, want to go infantry, want to go infantry, yada, yada, yada. And they were like, okay, cool. And I, I do distinctly remember the recruiting station master gunnery sergeant. He sat me down as I was going through the process. And, I, and, I, and obviously, it's all before 9 11, as we talked about, right? And I remember him distinctly telling me, hey, you want to be infantry? That's great. Just know that what comes with that job is you could be sent to foreign places and put your life at risk and be asked to kill people. Do you understand that? And it's like, oh, oh yes, I do. Master Guns is like, do you understand the significance of that? It's like, yes. <laughs> and of yeah. course he's like, no, you don't. Right. But then, you know, fast forward to post 9-11 immediate aftermath. It's like, oh, wow, man, I, I did sign up for that. Yeah. It was a pretty distressing time for a lot of people. What were you feeling? Were you thinking like, all right, war's around the corner and I'm going to go maybe see the elephant or was it some other type of emotion or, or reaction? I think that, yeah, it was mainly, I don't think we really anticipated us going to war mm -hmm. necessarily. You know, I think we all thought there would be a response. I remember after boot camp, when was I? I was going somewhere like I was getting on the plane. I mean, this was, this was, Right after boot camp, I was getting on the plane probably to go home or go and leave or something like that. And the U.S. had started their actions in Afghanistan. They were leveraging, you know, 
special forces and stuff like that. And I, I just thought like, yeah, that's probably going to be like the extent of this, you know, and then going to the school of infantry in October, November, December of 2001, yeah, the instructors there weren't, we're going to war boys. You know what I mean? It was very much like, yeah, Hey, we're here to train you to make you infantrymen. And I want to say that the the tenor of thought there was basically like, yeah, like the special forces folks are doing their thing in Afghanistan. And that's, that is the result of us being attacked on 9-11. That is our response. And that, that's, yeah. the, that's the extent of it. Yeah. 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 It wasn't until, you know, what, what was it roughly like late 02 and then into 03 that it was like, okay, we are, looks like we're going to end up in a conflict in Iraq. And that was going to be a whole different ball game. But yeah, initially it was very much like, it looks like I'm probably not going to be a part of any type of response to 9-11. Yeah. Got it. You know, and not that that was, that was definitely not relieving. I think all of us wanted to do our part in that situation, you know, but that's just how it unfolded, at least initially. So you complete infantry training at school of infantry West. You're assigned to eighth and I in DC as a ceremonial marcher. So what's your reaction to that being your first assignment? What was the experience like? So one, getting recruited to 8th and I was a pretty interesting experience because I was in boot camp when they did it. And I didn't really know what was going on, obviously. Here's how it worked, all right? So I'm in the squad bay. We're probably cleaning the squad bay meticulously as always. And, you know, drill instructor comes out. He's like, who here is an 03 contract? You know, and it's like, this recruit, right? And everybody's putting their arm up in the sky. This recruit. We use a little more crude terms for that back then, right? And so he says, all right, who's an 03 active duty contract? Keep your hand high in the sky. You know, so some, some hands go down. It's like, all right, who's an 03 active duty contract? Six feet or over. Keep your hands high in the sky, right? And so that's me and a few other people. And he's like, you boy, get up here now. And so we go up there and grab our covers and stuff. He's like, follow me right now. You know, he speed walks us over to this uh, classroom. It's on like the other side of MCRD San Diego. (laughs) And there's all the other O3 active duty over six feet people in our company. We're all sitting there in the classroom, left hand, left knee, right hand, right knee, right? You know, eyes straight forward. These two first sergeants come out. First Sergeant Winters, what ended up being my first sergeant at 8th and I, fantastic Marine. The two first sergeants come out and they're like, hey, we're the first sergeants from 8th and I. We're here to recruit for 8th and I. That was about the extent of it. Like, <laughs> we're here to recruit for folks in eighth and I. Y'all line up right now in height order, you know? And so the folks that were kind of, I think it's like six, four and taller, they were, it was basically, they're just kind of going down the line. They're like, okay, yeah, you look good, color guard. Yeah, you look good, color guard, right? And they're, and they're coming down, they come to me. And I distinctly remember the Bravo Company Sergeant Major, he's like, kind of grabbing my shoulders, like feeling me in a way, you know, like, just kind of seeing like how solid am I? If you right. And he turns to first Sergeant Winters because color guard was in first Sergeant Winters company. He's like, he's like, this guy could probably be on the color guard too. First Sergeant Winters like, nah, he's an inch or two too short, but I'll take him. <laughs> so then, you know, fast forward from that scene where it's like eighth and I, what, what's going on? What's happening? I don't know. I'm just here. I'm just, you know, a dumb private, if you will. So fast forward from that scene to a few months later at SOI, they're reading off where everybody's going. (laughs) And yeah, me. And then a few other people that I remember being in the room with me, 
for this eighth and I recruitment meeting, or rather, you know, draft, freaking, we're all going to eighth and I. And so that's where we found out we were going, which was an interesting way to find out. And then, yeah, you know, we were kind of like, all right, well, what is eighth and I? Why aren't we going to the fleet like the rest of these people? And what does eighth and I do? And also, that you know, this is back obviously before smartphones or hell, Wi-Fi or any of that stuff. So there was no real easy way to know what this was, you know. So mm-hmm. the only way we found out was by asking the instructors, like, mm-hmm. what is eighth and I? What is Marine Barracks eighth and I? And they're like, yeah, you're going to go look sharp and you're going to drill. That's what you're going to do. You're going to represent the Marine Corps. Now get back in formation. That was basically the extent of our knowledge of this. Then graduated SOI, went on Christmas leave, came back, didn't go back to SOI, like reported directly up to 8th and I in DC. In general, how was that experience? Do you remember getting much opportunity to, besides drill and and look sharp, develop yourself, develop your knowledge and PME and, and such? So yeah, at 8th and I, we showed up. And the cohort of us that showed up together, we all formed and went through this course called, they called it a school, it was the Ceremonial Drill School. And yeah, I mean, you are just learning eighth and I style drill, which is a little bit different than what you learn in boot camp. And you're just learning that drill for, I mean, it must have been anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day, right? You're just drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. And of course, we're PTN and everything like that. And that course was a a few weeks long. And once you're done with that, then you go to your platoon. And Mm -hmm. so I went to Alpha Company's second platoon, and we're just ceremonial marchers. You know, I shouldn't say just because it's actually it's a it's actually a really like high vis and important job. You know, Mm -hmm. so I was in second platoon, and from there you're just going and doing ceremonies. You know, either in the national capital region what we called, we called them shots. Okay. A ceremony was a shot. And so you go to a joint service shot. A lot of times it'd be at the Pentagon and that'd be stuff for arrivals of foreign dignitaries, foreign like military chiefs of staff and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's like the stuff you see in movies, right? Like I got to take part in that, which is kind of interesting. All the work that goes into it is not that interesting and very taxing, right? Because yeah. when you, when you pitch somebody like you can be a part of this, Hey, you got to do 16 hours of drill. <laughs> like a lot of folks are like, ah, uh, maybe not so much. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I remember standing on the lawn in the, in the Pentagon for d- doing like, you know, eyes right as you're standing there. And then, you know, the, the secretary of defense of country X comes by along with the secretary of defense, right. And you're, you're watching them. You come back to the front as they go by, you know, with all the military music playing and stuff like that. So it's kind of, it's a really it is a cool experience, you know, mm-hmm. and then getting to be a part of funerals at Arlington. And then at some point I got to be on the firing squad, right? So we're doing the 21 gun salutes at some of the ceremonies and funerals and stuff like that. And we took a lot of pride in being the top-notch firing squad at 8th and I. It was an interesting experience. And what I'd say is that it taught me a lot about being a Marine, you know, not so much the infantry thing. Eighth and I has got a lot better about that now. They do a lot of infantry training at Eighth and I with their infantry Marines. When I was a company commander, I had Eighth and I Marines show up and they were squared away. Mm. Their stuff ended up being some of the top leaders in the unit. You know, when I was there, not so much. It was very much drill focused and ceremony focused. But the benefit to that was just 
getting to be a Marine, getting to represent the Marine Corps, the attention to detail that was stressed there, I found very helpful Hmm. going throughout the rest of my career as an enlisted Marine and then coming back as an officer. And so while at the time I was a little bit cynical in that, man, we're going to war, yet I am here doing this. Mm-hmm. Man, I have the worst luck ever. Right? You know, <laughs> this, oh man, it just woe is me type stuff, sure. you know. But little did I know that I would go from there to, you know, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines and go to Iraq and get my belly full of fighting, right? Sure. But at that, but at the time when I was at 8th and I, you didn't know that's in your future. And so it was like, man, once again, I'm going to miss out. September 11th happened. I wasn't part of that response. Now we're going to go to war in Iraq and I'm not going to be a part of that either. Right. You know, so I did kind of feel unlucky, but it all worked out in the end, obviously. We'll get to your extensive time in Iraq in just a moment. Just two follow on questions to your time at, at Eighth and I. One is you've got plenty of battlefields around you. You've got museums. I assume you're you're living at the barracks, right? So you're in D.C. proper. Yes. Did you avail yourself of all the opportunities around you to to go to battlefields, go to museums? And yeah, yeah, we went out on our liberty time. I remember going up to Antietam with you know a group of my fellow Marines from Eighth and I, just to go out there and check it out. Sure, Gettysburg, Bull Run, a lot of those things around there. You know, going to the Smithsonian museums and stuff like that. As far as back to your question earlier about like you know, PME and stuff like that. There were some unit-led PMEs that were somewhat historically based or tactically based and things of that nature. But I don't, I don't want to say that wasn't the focus there. It's just, you know, we were busy doing shots or getting ready for the parade season or what have you, you know. What's your advice to a first-term infantry Marine who's going to be assigned to 8th and I or who's currently assigned there? I know it's been a while, you know, it's been a while since you've been there and, you know, the place has changed, but if there is any crossover between your experiences, your time there and, and infantry Marines experiences there now, you know, as far as being successful, developing themselves, what would you advise them to do? Yeah. I mean, I'd say that you're in an area in a region that has a lot of resources for you to improve yourself, both education wise, professional military education wise. So take advantage of those things. And as I said earlier, I mean, at 8th and I, like I learned what being a Marine was, you know, at boot camp, but I didn't learn how to be a Marine until I got to 8th and I, mm-hmm. you know? So you have a fantastic opportunity at 8th and I to learn those things, to build those habits in yourself, to sustain the transformation, if I could use a phrase there. And so enjoy it. And then you'll be there for a year and a half to two years. I was there for a little bit less than two years. And you can go to the fleet and do all the infantry things that you want to do, man. So you're going to be in the national capital region with all of those resources and get to be kind of part of the pomp and pageantry and all the things that kind of that, that people see the Marine Corps and think of. You get to be a part of that and be that representation. And after doing that for a little bit, then you can go on the great adventure that you signed <laughs> up to do anyway. So yeah. it's kind of like you really lucked out yeah. in a way. It just may maybe initially it doesn't seem like you lucked out. Yeah. But you so, Dean, you finish your time at 8th and I, and then you join Company I, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Could you talk about the workup you did with the battalion prior to its deployment to Iraq? So, I showed up to 3-4 from 8th and I 
in like September of 03, September, October of 03. I could be getting the months wrong. So this is 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, back from the invasion of Iraq. You know, very proud of what they did as they should be. We thought we were going to go to Japan on the UDP. And then from there, potentially rotate to the Philippines to support some some type of operation there. And so once again, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I, I did miss out. <laughs> like, like Third time just, is not a charm. Happening, yeah. Yeah. So our workup, and, and we were going to deploy in December. So our workup really wasn't that much of a workup. But then, and by workup, I mean in 29 Palms, I think I showed up basically in time for them to do the ball and then go on Christmas leave. And then we came back or no, we didn't even do Christmas leave. Like we had the ball and I don't even think we had a field event and we were supposed to deploy <laughs> to, oh, wow. to, to Japan. Yeah. So I didn't even get to do a field event with these guys before we deployed. Now, when we were going to get on the buses to go to Japan, that's when we were told, actually, we're going to Japan. We're going to draw our gear. We'll have a month or two in Japan to get ready. And then we're going back to Iraq. So it was pretty crazy. It was, we had a promotion formation to promote me to corporal. And that formation, the buses are behind the formation to deploy, you know, so they promote me and they're like, they're like promote. All right. School circle. Hey, congratulations to corporal long, corporal prawl, corporal, this guy, corporal, that guy, Lance, corporal, this guy. Good. We're going to need your leadership. Because we're going to Iraq. <laughs> we're going to Iraq. Let's Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. And so deployed to Japan for the UDP. Well, what was the UDP? Grab gear. And so what happened was the battalion went to Japan. I actually got selected to stay in 29 Palms for a little bit because we had to build up a training cadre for the battalion to execute this stuff that we called SASO back then support and stability operations, probably, you know, similar to like basically what coin, what became coin mm-hmm. and one seven and three, seven, or rather one seven was going to train three, seven and SASO operations in the old condemned base housing area that was just over there by main side. Mm-hmm. And so we left a cadre from three, four there to basically learn from one seven what they were going to train three, seven in. And we watched them train three, seven. We built our own classes based off that. And then we linked back up with three, four in like January timeframe of Oh four. And then we started doing lane training because our battalion commander was Lieutenant Colonel McCoy. I was going to ask if, cause he was with the battalion during the March yeah. up. I wasn't sure if he stayed with it for, it's return deployment. Yes. Yeah. He was the battalion commander for the invasion and then also for our return deployment. Yeah. He's kind of the guy that started the whole lane training thing and stuff like that. So we came back to the three, four. It was, it was really interesting to get to be a part of this and see this actually work, right? Like at the, where it all started, if you will, this with lane training. And so us as the battalion cadre then ran training lanes for company cadres. So they would come through, we would train them up. So now they were like certified to train their certain things that they needed to train. Right. And then every company rotated through these lanes and executed the various training things that we had, right? Like mine was searching detainees, 
There was another thing that was just basically simple detainee handling. Riot control is another another one. Reaction to sniper, reaction to ambush, reaction to like receiving fire from a cruiser weapon system, things of that nature were all the lanes and the stuff we did in the training. We did it right there on Camp Schwab. Used the barracks, the various buildings there as our training areas, right? Like yeah, yeah. put a sniper on the second deck of the barracks, you know, and then we'd have to react to contact as we were patrolling down the street in full kit and with our weapons and everything. And, you know, react to contact, cordon the building, move through to search it, and then ultimately kill the sniper. Or, or a lot of times the guy would let himself be captured. So then we had to work through searches, detaining, sure. handling, reporting back to hire and all of that. And it was really effective, mm. really effective, really quickly. I feel like that battalion and that unit, we deployed to Iraq. And I mean, we were confident that mm. we could handle any situation that was thrown our way down to the squad and team level. I knew I could make a move at any point in time and someone would be covering me, right? Mm. Someone would be in overwatch. Someone would have, would be ready to react to contact or potentially shoot the bad guy before they could even shoot me. And before I even knew they were there, like that's how good that unit was. Yeah. What was it like having McCoy as your battalion commander? Did you get to interact with him much at all? No, I, I mean, I was just a corporal then and a team leader. So yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just the, the executor. I was more the beneficiary of kind of the command climate and culture that he established. Mm. Could you describe uh, that for a moment? Like what? Yeah, yeah, that I, like? Say, yeah, absolutely. I'd say that he was good at talking to the battalion and being very frank about it. I remember before we went to Iraq, we were in the base, the, the Camp Schwab, like theater, movie theater all battalion. And before, and he said to everybody, he said, look, we're going to deploy. We're not out there necessarily looking for a fight in this environment, but if we do have a fight, if we are in a fight, I demand that you kill the enemy, you know? So he was very much about taking the onus of the decision of inflicting death on someone. So that way, at least your subordinate didn't have to carry that burden. And so he said that very frankly, as well as his, the Sergeant Major, uh, Sergeant Major Howell, he was a fantastic Sergeant Major. And I distinctly remember him standing in front of the battalion in his very unique voice and very unique mannerisms. Like he could be very, very straightforward. You know, he'd tell all the officers to leave <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And in and, and relatively untactful ways. <laughs> and which all the, you know, all the enlisted Marines left, right? We're like, yeah, this Sergeant Major tells the officers to leave, right? And now I'm an officer and I'm like, oh man, Sergeant Major, please don't ever do that to me. But uh, yeah, Sergeant Major Howell, yeah, I distinctly remember him standing up in front of us saying, I am the example, right? Like black and white, <laughs> as clear as day. You know, he's like, I am the example. If I do it, it's okay. If I don't do it, then you don't do it. And he was tying that to, in a way, I think we'd had some, maybe a hazing incident or, or something along those lines. And his point was like, hey, you see me walking around here? I'm not going around thumping people. I'm not going around beating people. And if I can't do it, you can bet your ass you can't either, right? And so, and his point also was just like, and I don't do it because I don't need to. Right. I don't need to do that to lead. Yeah, he was he was fantastic. And that's just an example of the empowerment that Lieutenant Colonel McCoy gave him. Right? Like Lieutenant Colonel McCoy was like, I have this fantastic sergeant major. I'm going to leverage this guy to the max, you know. Sure. And then also 
as far as at least at the small unit level, I'd say platoon and in there in that battalion, I, like we were a great, like we were a tight team. Everybody that was there was very proud of having been in that unit. Like I still run into guys who were in three, four with me occasionally. A lot of them more were like retiring now. But when I see him, it's just like, man, yeah, that battalion, that unit, you know, like it, it was very unique and and I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. And I learned a lot about just, so if I learned about how to be a Marine at eighth and I, I learned how to be an infantryman in that battalion, okay. you know? Now, as far as another quick story about command climate, just to give you another side sidebar, if you will, we went to Kuwait, we got ready. And then from Kuwait, we convoyed to the border of Iraq, we had to stop there. So we stopped there for the night. All the convoys are, are, are parked parallel to each other. Like, you know, our India company ones are stacked and then Lima was next to us. And we had a standing battalion order that all upgun weapon systems will be manned at all times, right? So if you had a machine gun and a turret of a truck, Humvee, seven ton, whatever, somebody had to be behind at all times. And we pull into this basin Kuwait. We're going to go to chow, right? We're excited to get some hot chow. Our platoon's forming up and we're formed up next to the Lima company trucks, right? And there's a seven ton just behind my platoon sergeant as he's forming up our platoon. And on the seven ton is an upgun weapon system. And there's nobody behind the machine gun, right? And we notice it. And but before we could kind of maybe save Lima company from wrath, <laughs> from the wrath of the battalion commander, right? There's a Marine sitting in the back of the seven ton. He's not manning the machine gun. He's just sitting in the bed, just sitting there like doing his thing, eating his combos from his MREs, right? <laughs> and before we'd be like, no, get on that, get on that machine gun now. The battalion commander like turns the corner, just almost like a scene out of a movie, right? <laughs> he turns the corner and we see him and we know what's about to happen. You know, he sees the machine gun. He looks up, nobody's behind it. He looks at us. He looks at the 710 with the Marine in the back and he goes, what unit are you in? You know, and the Marine in the back of the 710 kind of half-assedly playing dumb. <laughs> He's like, three, four, sir. And he knows that's the battalion. <laughs> <Right. laughs> three, four, sir. And he's like, I know you're in three, four. What company? And then the Marine says, Lima company, sir. And as he says, Lima company, a Marine that was also in the bed of the seven ton that we didn't see sits up after taking a nap and just <laughs> reaches out, stretching with his eyes closed, opens his eyes, looks down and sees the battalion commander. <laughs> <laughs> and the battalion commander's like, go find your company commander. I want to see him right now. And then my producer is like, right face forward. March. Like, <laughs> like, Get out of here. Get out of here. We're, we're leaving the scene right now. Yeah, there's nothing but bad things in our future if we stay here. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, so, you know, he he had that ruthless accountability about him. Mm. What I would say is that some people may view that as a negative, but he also empowered people a lot, right? So as a, as a non-commissioned officer in that battalion, you were empowered to, like, you were the only person that could clear weapon systems. You were the only person that could do this. You were the only person that could do that. You know, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Some of these things had very, very strict procedures, which had to be followed that the NCO had to supervise. But with that also came, he's 
if anybody say disobeyed or disrespected an NCO, he had no qualms with adjudicating that, mm-hmm. you know, with having it come to his level and potentially like NJPing this Marine and removing rank and things of that nature, you know? So yeah. he expected a lot, but he would back you up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so he, it's like, he expected a lot, but he also put a lot of chips in the middle for his unit too. So that was interesting to see in that unit. I wouldn't say that I haven't seen that necessarily done again, but maybe it's just because it was the first time I've seen something like that and being in an environment like that, that uh, it really struck me as far as like how to lead an organization. Like yeah. It sounded like in three, four under McCoy being an NCO really meant something. Yes. NCOs walked around. We knew that was our unit. We knew we were in charge of it. We knew yeah. we had great responsibility and we took it very seriously. Gotcha. NCOs today should have the same thing. Mm. Right? And that's what I think when I try to develop NCOs today or try to empower people today, like that is the model that I'm trying to apply. Am I as effective at doing it as Lieutenant Colonel McCoy? Probably not. <laughs> you know, I'm willing to admit that, but at least, I mean, I will, con- I will try to mimic that because what that did for me as far as leading my people and developing me personally and as a Marine and as a man was profound, yeah. you know? So, yeah. so that's what I would like to try to do for the other folks that I impact that I can impact. Sure. So three, four deploys, goes to Okinawa, you stay in 29 Palms, but then join the battalion in Kuwait. And then go into Iraq. Do you go into Iraq in January? So I no, we joined I joined the battalion in January of 04 in Japan. Okay. We did our SASO training in Japan for man, it must have been four, maybe five weeks. It wasn't that long. Then we went to Kuwait, let's say it's Camp Udari off the top of my head, massed there. All of First Marine Division showed up there. Mm-hmm. Got there, pulled vehicles, got all our whatever other equipment we needed got briefed up on the convoy into Iraq to move from where we were up to, we were going to go up to Al-Assad and stage there and then execute our follow-on mission, which was to establish um, a firm base up in Rawa, mm-hmm. just our company. And then after being in Camp Udari for a short amount of time, it really wasn't that long, maybe a few weeks, if that, then we all pushed out of Udari, staged out in the desert, like the whole division did that. And then we convoyed into Iraq. And so we convoyed from Udari to that stopping point at the border of Iraq and Kuwait because mm-hmm. that was mandated. And then we convoyed from there to basically some halfway point in Iraq. Uh, I can't remember the name of that camp. Stopped there for a night because that was mandated too. They, they didn't want us driving all the way to the length of the country. They were worried about human factors for good reason. So we stayed in that camp for a night at the halfway point and then loaded back up and then convoyed the rest of the way to Al-Assad. And when we were, con- yeah, when we convoyed from, I think it was Al-Assad to, or, or rather from that halfway point to Al-Assad, we had to pull into uh, the firm base in Ramadi to refuel. And when we were pulling in there slowly, that's when like we hit our first IED, right? right? A vehicle it was like it was a vehicle right behind me, or it was two vehicles behind me. It was an ambulance, like boom, either ran over a, a 
pressure plate IED or somebody remote detonated this thing. And that was the first kind of realization, at least for me, as the first time an Iraq guy, most of my people had been to Iraq already. They were in the invasion, you know, but that was the first like, oh, wow, we're playing for keeps out here. Yeah. Like something real. Yeah. Something could happen here and this could all be over for me or one of the people that I'm responsible for. Right. Yeah. So you serve as a fire team leader and squad leader with the battalion in Iraq. Could you talk about your experiences during the deployment? For instance, correct me if I'm wrong here, you, you took part in the first battle of Fallujah, Operation Vigilant Resolve. I mean, what was that experience like? Yeah. So we were up in Rawa, which was an old Baptist retirement community. And we had built a, a firm base out there. You call it a cop, you could call it, I don't know, FOB or what have you. The, the nomenclature for these things changed throughout the years. We were calling it firm base at the time. And that's when, yeah, you know, uh, Fallujah went sideways from the contractors being killed, their bodies drug through the streets, burned, hung from the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty nasty scene. And we got pulled out of Rawa. I mean, it was, it was quick. It was quick. It was like, we're there. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, tomorrow you will convoy out. <laughs> like, you're going to hand this thing over to this unit and you are getting out of there. And we we're going to consolidate Al Assad. And then we got down to Al Assad. Which we were all kind of like, man, this is nice because you can have hot chow and stuff, right? We have, we have no hot chow for a while because, like, we were literally living on MREs for for a while there, and then we were there for maybe a day or two, and then convoyed down to Fallujah, pulled into the Fallujah camp, and got billeted and everything like that. And some like large tents that hold you know fifty or so people. Mm-hmm. That's where we were. We sat tight there until I guess the plan, until I guess you know, they could formulate the plan at higher headquarters levels on how we were going to attack the town or what exactly the response was going to be. Just the entire time we were there, it was just either there was some type of incoming round coming into the base somewhere or there was outgoing. Right? There was just like a constant kind of like boom, 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 boom going So there's on. active IDF trading back and forth it sounds like yeah yeah i mean the the incoming idf wasn't very accurate yeah you know you had to move around the entire time and you know, you're flacking kevlar we weren't allowed to eat in the chow hall so you would just go grab your food and exit and then go eat in some like, concrete bunkers that were outside mm-hmm. stuff like that and that's where we sat there and got ready to ultimately attack into the town for operation vigilant resolve and that was another pretty unique experience and that we were all staged there in Fob Fallujah. Again, very similar to like how we staged before we convoyed out of Kuwait. And there's just, you're sitting around and there's just thousands of Marines. There's all these tactical vehicles. Everybody's armed to the teeth, tanks, everything. We're all just staged, ready to go. PSYOPs, <laughs> the PSYOPs Humvee is playing something like let the bodies hit the floor or something like that, you know, just a great early 2000s classic. <laughs> and H1 Cobras coming over the overhead. Everybody's just like, rah, rah, you know, yeah. all this stuff, you know, like holding their weapons up, like the guy in platoon. Yes, yeah, so I was just thinking that. Yeah. Just thinking yeah. that too, <laughs> you know, it, and it's just, you're kind of looking around and like you realize, I mean, obviously I'm still like, man, some of them might get killed here shortly, but you're just <laughs> like the scene, you know, the scene is just so kind of powerful. Sure. And and I don't, I don't know if the term it would be surreal, but you're like, wow, I'm here experiencing this. Yeah. This is crazy. You know, 
And then we execute, you know, we depart the base. We move towards uh, the major route that runs just to the east of Fallujah. I forget the name of the route. I don't think it was, I don't think it was route Michigan at that point, but there's a kind of a highway road that's just on the east outskirts of Fallujah. And it's somewhat elevated, like elevated on a berm, you yeah. know. So the whole battalion just drives up this road, stops it, stops all in a nice line. Everybody dismounts rapidly, moves to the near side of the berm. Some of the upgun weapon systems are suppressing enemy positions that were shooting at us from, from random spots, you know. We weren't really taking a lot of fire, to be honest with you. The whole battalion's online on this east side of the berm, away from the city, ready to go. Everybody's ready to rock. And the Lieutenant Colonel McCoy is down there and he's just like, you know, right. And then everybody, he just gives the like hand arm signal forward and the, just the whole battalion of three, four, like flows over and just like ants wow. into the city. Again, another scene where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I'm a part of this. This is, this is insane. So was uh, it like a battalion attack? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It may have been every single I think it may have been India and Kilo mm-hmm. that we will, that we moved in together. I think Lima was kind of held back in reserve or maybe had like Lima minus or something. Because again, I was a team leader. So I was pretty much very narrowed into my piece of the pie. I've watched like some Lima and Kilo company guys were listening to this and they're just like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Fair enough, guys. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll check out the man chronologies. Yeah. Then we just moved through the, the town and we're, and we're clearing buildings trying to control my fire team and then move in conjunction with the rest of the squad wasn't that hard because we had trained to it a lot and we had run a lot of rehearsals, not necessarily for that, right. For an attack into a major city, but just a lot of rehearsals back in Japan, as well as just rehearsing in the camp of Al-Assad and stuff like that, like on tents and everything. It really built, cohesion and the ability to just very quickly see your adjacent unit maneuvering and then knowing where I need to maneuver to best support them. And then knowing when they're set and then, okay, you, like you've got me. Okay. I'm ready to move. Like now I'm moving my fire team and then being able to leverage my saw gunner and my other two Marines that had M16 A4s at that point like positioning them as we bounded forward and also pushing, putting myself in a place where I could effectively employ my M203. So as far as the team leader aspect of it, the rehearsals that we had done and the training we had done really just paid dividends every time we did something in Iraq, not even so much in Fallujah, obviously it worked there, but everything else we did, like on patrol or stopping to provide security just my guys knew where to move to get the best fields of fire. Uh, my saw gunner knew where to move automatically to put his saw in to be so without you having to tell him, Hey, post up here. It just kind of flowed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Organically. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Like instead of me having to go around, I mean, yes, at some point when we were on security, we had halted either as a squad or a fire team. I would move to each position to make sure that they had good fields of fire and can actually provide adequate security. And yeah, sometimes I'm like, hey, Salazar, you know, my rifleman, I'm like, Salazar, move to that other pillar or move yeah. to move across the street to that corner, right. stuff like that. Or Perry, same thing, like, all right, Perry, actually go up on the second deck of this building, you'll have a better 
build a fire. Like we have time, let's do that instead, you know, stuff like that. But otherwise just trying to harness like the individual decision-making of my Marines, they were just good at doing it by themselves. And I think we all trusted each other enough. Like I trusted them to do what they need to do to do their job. And I think they trusted me enough to not make some type of negligent or bad decision. Mm -hmm. They would do what I said, you know, which I found out to be very important as a team leader and full disclosure. I'm not a great team leader or the greatest team leader that ever let live. Right. You know, so what I experienced or found is that training your people, even at just like the small at that level, right? Like it's just four folks making sure your people are proficient with their weapon systems, you knowing their weapon systems, how to employ their weapon systems effectively. Ideally, you probably carried all these for some duration of time is important. It requires a lot of effort and it requires, honestly, you being able to have people that you are intimately involved with all the time do what you need them to do, even when they don't want to do it. Right. So being a team leader you live with your Marines. Like you live in the barracks with your Marines. When we were deployed, you live on a cot next to your Marines, right? You still have to set the exam. And it's, it is never ending. So as a platoon commander and a company commander, I had quite the luxury to where I could be like, all right, I'm uh, going to go do officer things, guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and by that, I could like feel, let my hair down or just chill, chill out or whatever the case may be, right? But as a team leader and, and a squad leader, you're just so around the people that you lead all the time that that responsibility is so just like never ending that it requires a level of discipline that is hard to understand. And I mean, some people may not want to do it. <laughs> like some people may not just want to surrender to that level of discipline yeah. within that job. So it's tough. So any small unit leader that's out there that would be listening to this, it's like, Hey man, your job is tough, but you're going to have to tell people to do things they don't want to do. So for example, when I was talking about in Iraq, us being relatively proficient and skilled, like, yeah, we went and rehearsed in Iraq in 120 degrees. We weren't exactly jazzed or excited about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I was not, sometimes myself or my squad leader was not Mr. Popular making people do things or when we had to do stuff with gas masks on and stuff like that. Like Marines, sometimes, sometimes they want to do it, but a lot of times they don't want to do those things. And so, but you have to make them do it, right? Yeah. And then you have to hold them to standard when they do do it. And what I've found at least in my limited experiences was that if you condition your people to like, this is how you're going to lead. This is how you're going to hold them accountable. They will embrace that. You know, they will come to understand that they will come to know that, all right, this is the way I've got to live my life. Right. Like I've got to expect that corporal motivator is going, when we we're going to wake up in the morning and he's going to take me to go PT. And that's just what it is. You know, I mean, I want to do it, but I've got to do it. And so instilling those habits of, honestly, it's like habits of thoughts, habits of action, but like habits of living your life in the military, it starts there at the team leader and the squad leader level. Yeah. And you've got to do it. Otherwise, your, your unit is really going to suffer negatively. It sounds like all of this 
culture building and habit building paid off in your first combat operation, Vigilant Resolve. Can you just talk us through a little more of your experience during that time? You're going through houses, clearing houses. You're with your squad, with your platoon, with your company. Eventually, the operation's called off, right? The attack doesn't go all the way through. So what is your squad, what's your fire team doing in general during the operation? And what's your reaction to, hey, we're pulling out? Yeah. So during the actual operation, I mean, we only really cleared buildings for about a day. We only went a few blocks deep and then we were told to stop. We actually went deeper than we were supposed to. And then we had to come back Mm -hmm. to a certain line because there were negotiations going on way above my level, you know, and what the details of that were, I do not know. So then we held that line for the next several weeks. I couldn't even, I want to say it was four weeks. It may have been five. We just sat there in Fallujah on this line day in, day out, didn't move. We did some back clearing and stuff like that. We did get into some direct fire contact and stuff like that, but it really wasn't that kinetic once once things kind of calmed down. It was kinetic for probably the first week or so, but after that, it was just it was just kind of like mundane, almost guard duty, if you will. And we just sat out there and man, Damien, we got so dirty and gross. It was bad, right? And so, and plus we'd come straight from we basically, I think it come straight from Rawa to there. And we I don't think we ever had a time, a chance to shower or anything like that. And we only showered one time up in Rawa that I can remember because they came up and set up like field showers and we showered. But all the rest of the time, like we had not taken a shower. We'd been basically living off MREs. We had like one or two hot meals over the span of, you know, three months or so. And so then at one point we got pulled, they were rotating people back to go back to Bob Fallujah, like a squad at a time from each company or something. So when our squad got to go back, we had a hot meal, which so we go to the chow hall and we can actually eat in the chow hall now. I think we still had to eat with our flax on or something. And because this is also like the rest of the country had flared up, you know? So resupplies, ground resupply to Fob Fallujah was basically probably not cut off, but limited. So we go to the chow hall and we're like, we're going to get hot chow finally again. Awesome. And we go there and all they were serving was this thing called the Fallujah sub. Okay. And what they did was they basically just took leftover food that they had meats and such, and just kind of chopped it together, threw some barbecue sauce on it and put it on a hoagie. And that was your chow. (laughs) So it's like, it sounds questionable. It sounds questionable. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, it was a letdown. So, (laughs) but uh, I think I got some cinnamon toast crunch though. So that, that lifted my spirits. And then, then, like I said, we were so dirty that my squad leader and I, we went to go find some showers, you know? So we found these, these showers that are in kind of like a Connex box, Mm -hmm. right? So you have your own little individual shower stall and our uniforms were so dirty that instead of seeing like the desert digi pattern, it was all just kind of like a Brown, you know, you basically look like a a Brown flight suit or something like that. And and this is back before frog gear. So these are camis like that we mm-hmm. wear today, you know, yeah, yeah. we're out fighting in. And so my squad leader and I, we go into the shower, you know, I get in the shower stall and I just turn the water on. I'm fully in my camis and I'm just letting the water clean my camis. <laughs> so I'm in there and I take my camis off and I wash my camis in the shower yeah. and basically like 
it turns into mud at the bottom of the shower because that's how dirty my camis are. And I wash all my clothes, wring them all out, then wash myself, then just put my wet clothes back on, put my boots on, squat it around, we take off. And it's so hot in Iraq and dry that I mean, within an hour, our clothes dry <laughs> on our body. You know, we're just like, yeah, we'll just do this. We'll just wash our clothes like this because we know it'll dry so fast. We'll air dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we walked around and air dried it. But so that was like, the, that was the one time that we actually was like, oh, thank God. We need some relief, you know? Right, right. But then, yeah, like I said, we sat on that line for for weeks and weeks. And then finally, and and, and multiple times we were told, hey, in the next 48 hours, we're going to continue the attack. In the next 48 hours, we're going to continue the attack, right? But at some point, I guess the deal was struck with, I believe it was called the Fallujah Brigade. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some, the local security forces were going to come in and take over the, the governance and the security posture, if you will, of Fallujah. And they, pull, and they pulled us out. And that was easily, you know, say a top five most frustrating event in my life all of us were very upset about that, you know, because we all knew that nothing had changed, you know, <laughs> like we'd attacked, people had been hurt, people had been killed, stuff like that, but yet nothing, like this was nothing decisive. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. we knew that Volusia was still going to be a problem, even on, you know, at the just rifleman level. We knew yeah. this. And so we were all very upset about it. And interestingly enough, I ran into Lieutenant Colonel McCoy. Back in 2016, I want to say, and chatted with him for a while. It was really neat to get to talk to him. And stuff. Of course, he's like, he didn't know who I was, but I told him who I was and what I served in his unit. And, oh. and it was like, we're off to the races, you know? And so, so we were, we were talking for a while and he, he brought that up in our conversation of us getting pulled out. And I asked him, I was like, sir, did that frustrate you? And he was like, like without missing a beat, he basically said something along the lines like, yeah, it's the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah, me too. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was just interesting to see that, yeah, the battalion, even the battalion commander, someone who is kind of has those, have those layers and presenting that example to everybody. I mean, he would have had to have great discipline not to show that, that frustration to his subordinates, you know? Sure. And yeah, that was when they pulled us out, like I said, it apparently it was from the battalion commander on down. Of course, we didn't know it was from the battalion commander on down, but a lot of us, all of us were deeply, deeply upset about that to where it's still, yeah, it, it hung over us for a long time. I would say that by getting to stay in Iraq and then go back to participate in Phantom Fury, that was kind of like a way of like exercising that demon. You sure, know I mean? sure. Which I think is a good segue to... My next question. So you don't return home from Iraq when 3-4 rotates home. You stay in country and you attach or cross-deck to 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, specifically Alpha Company. And as you said, you take part in the battalion's attack into Fallujah and, and their time in Iraq. So what led you to stay in Iraq? Could you talk about the process of assimilating into Alpha 1-8? And were there any challenges you encountered there? Yeah, so I wanted to stay because for a number a number of reasons. Some of these will probably sound corny or ridiculous, but one was yeah the Fallujah thing I was just talking about. I was like this, this there was something just in my bones. I was like this is going to happen again, and I want to be here for it. Two, I was an infantry marine. I was like yeah, I'm an infantry marine. I want to stay because this is what I do. This is what I signed up to do. 
so I'm here, you know, I, and I remember when I went over to Alpha 18, the first sergeant, he asked me, and he was like, why do you want to stay? <laughs> right, same kind of thing. And I, I told him that I said, first sergeant, I'm a Marine infantryman and this is where the fight is. So this is where I want to be. And then, another, you know, the other, the other ones are, you know, just kind of your typical patriotism, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like we're, we're at war, we're at war. I think that I'm relatively decent at making decisions in combat and I can make sound decisions that would ideally defeat the enemy and keep my people alive, you know? So I felt like I could still do more for those folks around me. I'll leave it over to them to judge whether, whether or not I really did much for them. You know, mm. that was, that was what guided me as far as assimilating into alpha one, eight, it was a unique experience because it was not, they were not like third battalion, fourth Marines. Third battalion, fourth Marines were in the invasion. First ones into Baghdad. The company that I was in tore down Saddam's statue, that iconic uh, image, you know, like those guys did that. So there was a lot of esprit de corps confidence and that unit and their abilities. One eight, they did participate on the back end of the evasion. Like they, they ended up in Mosul because I think they were on the on a mu when the invasion happened, but they didn't really participate in much, or at least what they didn't feel was very much. And so there seemed to be a little bit of uncertainty from them because of that, as well as hesitance and stuff like that. I did appreciate that they, when I came across to them, they, they kind of, in a, in a way were kind of like, yeah, so you've been here and you've got combat experience, like teach us, we let us know what's going on, you know, stuff like that. But it was definitely a different unit and that how it was run and managed some of the command climate, culture, discipline and stuff like that. And so I had to, and so I did have to assimilate to that. Some of it, some of it, I didn't, right. Some of it, I was just like, no, this is how you're supposed to do things. Cause this is what I learned in three, four. So we are applying it here. Some of that didn't go over that well, right? You know, like I wasn't exactly Mr. Like popular occasionally with some of my Marines. Cause like I said, I would one eight actually got to stay or rather alpha company one eight got to stay in Al-Assad. And then we would just execute um, like 48 to 72 hour kind of patrol base ops up around Haditha, you know? And so we'd go operate around there and stuff like that and come back to, to Al-Assad. So from my experiences with 3-4, I was like, wow, this is kind of, this is actually kind of nice, if you will. Like, I just got to go do the thing for three or four or, you know, two to three days, come back for two to three days. You have hot chow, you have showers, you can watch DVDs with people, you know, you can know what's going on in the world. And like before, like when we were in Rawa, I mean, we were, we were living literally in the dirt all the time. At some point, we ended up shifting to where we lived in our own two-man tents and stuff like that. But we had fighting positions dug so we could quickly dive into for in case we received indirect fire. So that was interesting as far as the difference there. But because we were on Al-Assad, I was like, okay, so when we're in the rear, guys, fire team, we're going to PT. <laughs> and so that was met with mainly groans. Some folks got upset, upset about that, as well as uh, the team leader. That dude, the dude that I that I'm talking about, the guy that was the team leader that I had to, that I took over for, that they basically bumped him out to have me be the team leader, which you can imagine how well that went, right? You know, I was kind of at odds with him because obviously his ego is bruised pretty significantly. You know, it took me a while to win that guy over. Did he become one of the team members then? Like, did you 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. He was in my fire team. Yeah. I became the team leader. He right. was in my fire team. So yeah. I had a five man fire team trying to like, he was just kind of a constant kind of thorn inside or whatever. And I would PT my guys and da, 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 da. And while I was with one, eight, we got pulled back down to Fallujah to cover a gap between one, five and three, five in their rip out there. Or it may have been one five and three one. I can't remember, but I think it was one five and three five. So we came down there, one five left. We basically took over their AO for a month or so or something like that. Mm-hmm. And while we were down there, man, that was, and that was brutal mm. as far as physically, because we were just, we operating out of Fob Fallujah, we go do basically 48, 72 hour patrol base ops, if you will. It wasn't even a patrol base. It was basically, we would leave the Fallujah get dropped at a point that was in um, karma. We would get dropped in a point in karma and then we would just patrol and we would patrol from, I think that the intervals were basically like from zero four till something like 1200. And then we'd stop and we just go to 50% security and we do that until 1600. And then we'd pick up and we patrol from like 1600 to midnight. Oh. And then we'd stop and we go to 50% security. Then we pick up at zero four. We do that for two or three days at a schwack. And that was just physically annihilating. Like that was, that was one of the worst physical experiences in my life. Top five. Anywho, I say all that because on one of these patrols, one of my Marines like fell in a hole and hurt himself. And he's like, ah, my knee, you know, he's kind of rather around understandably. So, and so, and so, I put my fire team members to post security because that's the first thing you do. If you're stopping security, if you stop security, somebody falls and has a boo-boo security. First thing, don't even check the boo-boo first. Right. And so I post my folks in security and I, I was like the, the guy that was the team leader, I put him like up on the road because he had a two or three on his weapon system still. And I want to put him on the road with the 203 and then my other rifleman up there because he had the, an ACOG, right? An mm-hmm. RCO. Again, fields of fire, you know, where they can see the best and should be able to engage the furthest. Right. And he was basically like, yeah, I don't need to go up there or what have you, or the rifleman doesn't need to come up here. But we're like having this, hey, let's have a tactical conversation while we're out in a combat zone type thing, you know? And so I just like, I just went off, right? Just went off on this guy in front of everybody. It was just like, shut up. Get the fuck up there. I think I did br- like briefly explain my rationale, but in angry terms. Here's why I'm telling y'all to do this. Mm-hmm. Now that I've fucking proven to you this, <laughs> go do it now. Right. And so they went and did it. I helped out my Marine. He was fine. He finally just had to kind of like walk it off and he gets up and gets and say, like, All right, let's go. You know, so we start moving. And then later on, when we got back to the base, in like a private moment, he seeks me out and he said, he's like, hey, hey, Long, let me talk to you outside. He's also a corporal too, right? Good dude. Hey, Long, let me talk to you outside. So I'm thinking like, are we about to fight <laughs> over, this thing, over this thing that happened out on patrol, right? And we go outside and he, man, and to this guy's credit, he says, he says, uh, hey, Long, you know, I've been a pain in the ass. I just haven't been a good teammate. You know, like I see that you care. I see that you know what you're doing. I see that you're looking out for us. And I'm sorry for how I've been acting. 
And I was just like, wow, that went a different direction than I expected. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, you know, I, I told him, Hey man, yeah, like you're another corporal here with me. Like I need you. <laughs> like I need you. The other guys in our team need you. And I appreciate you saying that. And I'm happy that we can now function as a unit. And I'm sorry that what happened to you and your job happened, man. But I like, I didn't have any control over that. Right. And from there on, we were fine. Now, sadly, man, a few weeks after this, this guy got wounded, like had his foot blown off by an IED, like behind me and everything. And so that was, uh, I was, I've always been very appreciative that he did that. Mm -hmm. And all these, um, guilty that he got hurt you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i walked by that id and they didn't blow it up on me they didn't blow it up on but they blew it up on him right. you know so you, so you kind of ask yourself like man if i didn't stay right like mm-hmm. would he have been where i was or would it have just been somebody else you know it's all it's all that right. and, and yeah and years later i talked to him I went and visited him years later, you know, after I'd gotten out of, I was out of the Marine Corps and stuff and I went and visited with him and we kind of, we kind of talked about it. He was just like, yeah, man, you know, things happen for a reason. It's fine. We are where we are. You led the fire team after I've departed and is, you seem to lead them well, man. And it's just like, yeah, thank you. I guess that's the best you can hope for in those types of circumstances, you know, but no animosity, no bitterness no. towards one another. Yeah. No, no. And I, I mean, I'll admit, like, I mean, I guess in a selfish way, like, I, I was worried when I talked to him on the phone. And then when I went to see him, I just, I was like, I didn't know how I was going to handle it. I was worried that I would be like emotional. Mm. I, was worried, I was worried that he would hold it against me, you know, all that, but he didn't. And I really appreciate that. And I, I think about as you, I say the general you, I don't know how other people experience these things or process them, but it, I, I got to think that it's somewhat similar across the board and that like going through some of this stuff, it just like, there's not a day that I don't think about like that guy or seeing him screaming on the ground and stuff like that. But it's not a weak point. You know, I should remember this person. I should remember his sacrifice and in a way as you go, it's like, I want to remember these things. I want to think about these people. I don't want to feel happy about it, you know, right, like, right, right. like, cause I shouldn't, this is why sometimes I'm reticent to tell war stories to people. It's kind of, kind of be like the right, con- like maybe, you know, like this context or what have you, cause I don't want to talk about these things in a way that it's like entertainment. Right. Like this dude's life was changed forever. That's not an entertaining tale to me or to him. And so that's why whenever I do talk about it, I do try to couch it in, in that and keep that perspective on it, you know? Mm. So your platoon commander in Alpha 18 was Elliot Ackerman, who would become a decorated Marine Raider and an author. What was it like serving with Ackerman? Yeah, Lieutenant Ackerman was great. He was knowledgeable. He knew his job. There were times of great stress and strain during our deployment together that he handled is just like picturesque ideal leader. You know, I mean, you know, our platoon took a lot of casualties. A lot of guys got wounded in a rapid time frame. you know? And so as a guy who's been a platoon commander in combat also, I mean, it's like anytime anybody gets injured, even if it's the most slightest thing you do, 
feels some ownership of that, right? And so for him to have that happen, like, bam, 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 like repeatedly, and he is just trying to fight through the situation, right? And trying to, you know, obviously win, but it's like, man, am I going to make it out of here with a, with, with a unit anymore? Like, am I going to be the guy that gets everybody wounded or killed or what have you? And yet he obviously fought through these situations. He won. He was wounded in the process and never left and stayed with his unit and kept leading us. Yeah. I could genuinely tell that this guy cared about this unit. I was happy and excited as I got to know him as one of his team leaders. I was like, this guy's a good platoon commander. I'm glad I work. <laughs> I'm glad this is my platoon commander right here. He was great. He was fantastic. You know? And I still keep in touch with him occasionally over the years. And yeah. Going into that situation, being Phantom Fury, <laughs> having Elliot Ackman as my platoon commander, I don't know how I how I hit the jackpot, but man, I lucked out big time on that one. Could you give a, a summary of mm-hmm. all the company's actions in, in Fallujah? You know, what about your squad's actions specifically? We had cleared down into Fallujah. Really, we did what I believe Captain Cunningham, our company commander at the time, he called a limited penetration. So Bravo and Charlie 1-8, as well as other elements of 1st Marine Division and cleared down to a certain point. And they were still, I think, north of where they needed to be to then trigger us attacking into the city to seize the government center. I don't know what happened, but I guess they, the powers that be, the battalion level or regimental level or even division level basically said, hey, we're going to maximize, like, we're going to leverage night. We're going to send them in. Right. So in the nighttime, I, I want to say it was November. It may have been November 10th. It may have been like the Marine Corps birthday <laughs> or maybe the next day. But I remember Lieutenant Ackerman because we were just sitting outside the city, Alpha Company, like waiting, waiting. We're seeing all this stuff going on in the city, like Miklik charges exploding, right? Tank main gun rounds, artillery. Obviously, you can just hear the small, the roar of small arms fire. Even though we're clicks away, you can still hear us. I remember Lieutenant Ackerman as we're just sitting there and we're just like, man, what are we Go like when we go, and uh, it's like, hey guys, we may go in tomorrow, November tenth, the Marine Corps birthday. All right, you know, yeah. like keeping up about that. But anyway, so we we go into our attack that night, moved via tracks, AVs through the city at night, got to the government center, breached the outer wall with a Bangalore, flowed into the government center, and the government center was a complex of several buildings, like a large police station. I'm talking, I mean, I think it was like four or five stories tall, mm-hmm. uh, a large building, and then several other buildings in this complex that were all relatively large. And so our company flowed through the breach site. Our platoon went to go clear the police station. Some of the other platoons went to clear the other adjacent buildings that were to generally our east. And so I think it worked. We caught him by surprise. We didn't take any contact going down there. Got into the police station. That there were bad guys there. They ran when they saw us because we probably caught them unawares. And so we relatively quickly seized the government center and then pushed up to the edge of the main highway that divides Fallujah north-south. Then from there, just kind of sat there to wait for the rest of the division to catch up and clear it to us. We sat there all day and that's when the enemy kind of started orienting on us and then we started to receive fire. And it was during that day that uh, Lieutenant Malcolm, our weapons platoon commander was killed. And so we were there just kind of in a gunfire exchange really for like all, all day. 
just all day, you know, finally that night, that first night, we're kind of trying to catch some rest. I can't remember resting, but uh, that's when we got told, Hey, we're going to push across the main highway that divides the city. And the rest of first Marine division is basically on the North side of this highway. And we're going to push to the South side and we're going to move to occupy a building on the South side. The first building we chose was, was, kind of, was a multi-story building is relatively robust but we prepped it with AC-130 gunfire. So they're unleashing 105 millimeter howitzer rounds on this building. And I remember when they were, when we were kind of talking about the plan, how we're going to go to this building as we're looking at the map. And they were saying how, yeah, we're going to prep it with, and I think it was Lieutenant Ackerman's like, yeah, we're going to prep it with the 105 from an AC-130. I was like, so is that building still going to be usable after that? <laughs> and then, of course, I didn't voice that. I was just thinking that in my head, like, hmm. So we push across the road, we go to that building, and sure enough, I mean, this thing is just annihilated. <laughs> There's no walls left. There's nowhere to take cover. It's prepped a little too well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, fantastic shooting by the AC-130. Yeah. So it's just kind of like we're in there kind of on the stairs, like, well, what do we do? You know? Mm-hmm. And so and so we quickly moved to that other building that we ended up staying in, which was apparently some type of kind of shop on a front store. I think it's like a kebab shop now. That's what Lieutenant Ackerman and his reporting that he does now. He went by there a few years ago and took a photo and sent it to me. Apparently it's like a kebab chain that's in Iraq now. But yeah, it was, it was some type of store. It had, they had all kinds of stuff, but it also had candy in it and it had like sunglasses and, and all this stuff. And so we set up shop in there and just posted up for the night, you know, put out security, all that. I think we were maybe like a block or two south of, the the road and i think we were the forward element of the division at that point uh, i could be wrong you know and so we're there and then what i distinctly remember is i was on security as the sun rose and we're out there we're up on security myself and my fire team and you could hear chanting around us like chanting religious chanting usually echoing kind of faint I remember my um, saw gunner at that point that I had up there with me. He's like, I want to say it was Bonnie. His name was Bonnie. Nice corporal Bonnie. He's like, sir, or rather corporal long. Do you hear that? And I'm like, yeah, what is that? And then for like, I mean, it was like, for me saying that, it was just like contact bad guys. It's like total, like I'm, I'm throwing two or three rounds at people. Our machine guns that we had oriented down the road, the highway on both sides are just like, shooting folks as they're trying to get across the highway because what appears to have happened is that we moved at night. The enemy didn't know we were there. So as they were kind of moving to come up to the road to try to contest first Marine divisions, you know, cross of that road, we caught them unaware, you know? And so they were moving out in the open and we ended up just catching a bunch of them in the open and killing these guys and did that for a little bit. And then the enemy got oriented on our position Right. And so then it started to where they started focusing fire on us. And so we had a few casualties. We had to Kazavak those guys, which that turned into a pretty significant fight just to get them out of there. Because, like I said, we're forward of everybody. We're a few blocks to the south. The first Medivac or Kazavak they tried, the AV got hit with RPG fire. It still ran, it caught on fire. I don't think anybody was wounded. 
but it caught on fire and they just turned it around and like drove away, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it became, and this is like, this is like a proud thing, I think for the Marine Corps, right? Like we're there, we're kind of, kind of sort of stranded, if you will, you know, but we've got these Marines that we've got to get out. One of them was shot through the leg and, and he was bleeding. He was bleeding real bad. So the, the AV attempt fails. So then it becomes some type of, I don't know what level they coordinated all this, but it was probably Captain Cunningham, our company commander. He's like, all right, my other two platoons are going to suppress everything across the road. The tanks that are in support of us are going to move up. They're going to um, basically block each side of the highway and be prepared to suppress and, and shoot at enemy positions that are that are going to shoot at us as we evac these guys. And then they pulled up an army M113 medevac vehicle, you know, like the old M113s from Vietnam, right? And they use those as ambulances. So they pull that thing up, they stage that thing ready to go. And we're going to medevac this Marine that's, that's hit. And we didn't have a pull of slitter. So we put this guy in a, in a poncho. Okay. <laughs> so like the old ponchos, right? So we put this guy in the poncho. It's myself. It was my squad leader. It was one of my Marines. It was, and it was two other of my Marines. We're going to carry this guy out. I kept my weapons slung. A lot of the other Marines handed their weapons off so that way we could be faster as we ran out with this guy. And so we staged there. We're with him in the poncho. And I don't know how they coordinated this. I mean, it, it, it was fantastic coordination between, obviously, Lieutenant Ackerman, Captain Cunningham, and then everybody else. But at some point in time, they were just like triggered, like go, boom, right? And so the whole world opens up, just machine gun fire, rifle fire, tank coax. The war was so great. You you could not make out a rifle shot, machine gun burst or anything. It was just a roar of fire. You know, it is impossible to explain the amount of firepower they dumped to get us out there to get this guy out of the print. And so we pick up our Marine. And man, he is in agonizing pain. He is he is screaming at the top of his lungs, right? Because it, because this round went through his thigh and, sh- and I think it shattered his femur and it severed his femoral artery. So he had a tourniquet on his leg. And so he's in unbelievable pain, just screaming the whole time. And we run out and Marines pop out of the door and they're shooting down this alley to cover us. And so the, the four of us or so, like we pick them up. And then we're just, we run out into the street and the street is just filled with smoke because folks have like thrown smoke grenades and stuff for obscuration. And we run out in the street and we're going and we're going and it's like, all right, we're out in the street. All I can hear is gunfire and explosions. And where's the M113? <laughs> it's like, where's this thing at? This yeah. thing's supposed to be here. Right. And then but we're just, it's just like, just keep running, just keep running. Maybe it'll show up, you know? So like, it's like, don't stop, don't stop. And so we're running and then through the smoke, like the wisps of smoke, like in a movie, right? Like here comes the M113 just right for us. And then I'm like, they're going to run over us. <laughs> they're going to kill us all. The M113 is going to kill us, you know? But it's like, just don't stop. Just keep running, you know? Like there's nothing we can do, but just run. and. The M113 is coming towards us, coming towards us. And then just like in an action movie, it, it feels around 
and then just drops the ramp. Bam. Like almost right at our feet. Just perfect. We just run up to, with this guy and we hand him to, to the medics. Medics are like, get him, get him, get him, go, 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 get out of here. Get out of here. Like basically like everybody run, you know, instead of yeah. then it's just everybody turns and it's just like, get back to the house, get back to the house. Get back. And so we're just hauling butt out of that street. The entire time is just a total undiscerning, like just roar of gunfire. It's like tanks, uh, alpha company, maybe even in Bravo company elements, our platoon just suppressing everything mm-hmm. to let us get this guy out. And so get back to the house. And then, yeah, we just kept fighting for the, for the rest of the day. And so fought for the, the rest of the day there. And that's when the division had crossed the road and we had to catch up. Alpha company did, cause we had now fallen behind them. So we had mm-hmm. to catch up. And what may have happened was that as the division moved forward, they kind of like pushed the enemy like in front of us, mm-hmm. maybe. And so, which obviously we wouldn't know. And so we stepped off at that point and attacked down this alley. It was kind of in the waning hours of the day. I want to say it was around 1600. And mind you, this is November. So it was getting, it was getting dark around like 17 ish, 1730. And so we stepped off, attacked down this alley. We were basically following behind a tank. And I mean, we were just taking fire from from all directions, it seemed like, you know, and we're, we're responding, we're shooting back. We kept bounding forward, kept kind of clearing a house here, a house there to try to set up some strong points to then figure out our next move as we continued south, kept bounding south like that. And then finally we hit a T intersection and the tank stopped and didn't want to expose itself by going into the T intersection. You know, and I mean, we had houses all around us. We're down in the street in an alley and we're, we're cross shooting over each other to cover each other. And we were trying to figure out how to get across this T intersection. So my squad moved up to try to move across and then gain the foothold in the house across the street to let the rest of the platoon echelon in. And there was just too much fire down that road. And that's where our squad leader got wounded first team leader got wounded. Mind you, I was the second team leader. So now I became the squad leader. So we grabbed them, pull them back, medevac them. I remember distinctly <laughs> Lieutenant Ackerman slapped me on the shoulder. And again, there's just a roar of gunfire because we're shooting over each other. So the reports of the weapons are in front of you going towards you. So it is loud. Yeah. And yeah, I remember him slapping my shoulder, leaning into my ear and yelling. You've got the squad now. Right. So it's like, got it, sir. And he's like, yeah, hey, get back up there, get us a foothold in the building. The rest of the platoon, we're going to follow you. And so we tried again, right, with the squad. But then another one of my Marines got shot. And we just couldn't get across the street because we were just eating machine gun fire, RPG fire. We we're still shooting at people that were in the buildings adjacent to us. And so the platoon started pulling back. We started following them, grabbed our wounded guy, drug him with us, made entry into this house, tried to strong point it. And then we're trying to get our, our wounded guys out and stuff like that. And yeah, from there, it's kind of like when night started to fall, it was just a pretty nasty fight and an exhausting day, you know? And finally, finally we got to like our way out of that situation got kind of linked back up with the company. We had to wait until like night finally fell. 
I mean, it must have been, you know, zero one or zero two in the morning before we picked up from where we had finally consolidated as a platoon mm-hmm. and then moved to link up with the rest of the company. That's how just how much fire we were taking there. It was unbelievable. I, I remember in that situation, well, later on talking to Captain Cunningham when he was Lieutenant Colonel Cunningham, when he was the battalion commander, I ran into him at Camp Schwab in the O Club there. And we were just jaw jacking about that whole thing. And I was like, hey, you remember that? You know, da, da, da. He was telling me how he was working through trying to use, because basically at one point, like our platoon was like, we were cut off from mm-hmm. the rest of the division. Yeah, like Alamo time, you know? And so he was leveraging, gonna gonna leverage tanks to try to get us out, you know? But to clear up the geometries of fire for the tanks, they were gonna have to move like like three five or three one who because we were tied into them, they were gonna have to move back to clear up the geometry so the tanks could shoot, so then we could get people to us and then get us out of there. Like that is what they were trying to work through at their level to try to prevent us from being cut off and, you know, annihilated. But, but I mean, obviously we didn't get annihilated and we held these bad guys off and then, and then uh, we're able to, again, leverage night to then link up with the rest of the company. Okay. We're good. All right. You know? And so then we went firm and then we just continued the attack. And then from, from really that point, like those first two days were really kind of two or three days were kind of like the real nasty chaotic fighting mm-hmm. but after that it felt like we kind of like okay we got it you know what i mean like we know how to do this now yeah then it became more systematic as we attacked and continued attacking south and leveraging like clearing specific points and provide overwatch we didn't really do much attacking in the day so much as we would pull up strong points some areas during the day getting into some gunfights and stuff maybe do some localized clearing to take out enemy positions and then as night fell, we would then move again mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. south and then strong point that area, repeat the process, you know? So when finally we got to the very southern edge of the city, that's when, okay, we're at the southern edge. Now we got to back clear. <laughs> now we're going to go back and clear everything in detail. Mm-hmm. And when we did that, that's when it became pretty lethal, you know, as far as, before every the, like the bad guys had an out, you know what I mean. They could, mm-hmm. I say the bad guys, but I mean the enemy had an out. They could they could continue to move south and mm-hmm. pull back south. But once we got to that southern edge, they couldn't go anywhere, so they were stuck. And so now, as we closed in on them, you didn't really know when you were closing in on them because all they got to do is just sit there quietly, mm-hmm. right? So you could be going into a house and it could be totally empty, and just just somebody's house, whatever. Or you could be going into a house that's got a squad size element of the enemy waiting for you. So that's another thing where, as I'm talking about it and thinking about it, where, yeah, it took us a few iterations to kind of develop like, okay, well, here's our game plan for this when we, when we do this next time. So like the first few iterations, as the platoon would go out and clear in detail, same thing with our sister platoons, you know, we would take casualties, right? Like we'd run into the enemy, take casualties, find a way to kill them and then move on. And then it became like, okay, what we're going to do is just move in. And as soon as we get any indications that they're there, i.e. like they shoot at us or whatever the case may be, we will immediately get out, cordon off the house or building they're in 
and then we'll just leverage firepower against them, right? Or use a, a like a DC nine, a huge, large bulldozer, come in and just collapse the house on them. And, and we would leverage our interpreters, you know, with megaphones, telling the guys like, "Come out, come out, please come out. You don't have to die," you know, and, and things of that nature. Because, because all the houses in Iraq had bars on the windows and stuff. And so there were no jumping out of a window, you know, or anything like right. that. Like if we collapsed that building, that thing was going to become your tomb. And man, I'll tell you, like none of these guys ever surrendered. That was my next question is if any of them took you guys up on the offer. I, I was, for some of my sister platoons, a few, uh, they had some guys surrender occasionally. But for us, the vast majority of the time, they were not, by, not by, by, I mean, every time. Yeah either would not respond or would yell back insults. And so that was, uh, so that was the TTP we ended up developing as we got more experienced in that urban type conflict. If we could go back just a moment. So those first few days when you're in contact, you're south of that highway. If you had to estimate how large of an enemy force do you think your platoon was fighting during those first few days? I mean, if you totaled it up, maybe a, a few platoons, I guess, here and mm-hmm. there. Any one point in time, I'd say we were probably in contact with squad-sized elements here and there. So yeah, like if you totaled it up, as far as like the overarching number of enemy we faced and shot against us, maybe a company minus size element, maybe, mm-hmm. right? But as far as like when we were making contact with the enemy, it was usually like buddy pair, fire team, squad size elements, right? Just one after the other. Boom, 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 you know. How skilled, how proficient were these fighters? I mean, they could shoot accurately. They seemed to know where they were trying to. I mean, you know, like I said, they knocked out a trap. They were trying to knock out the tanks. They knew where to shoot a tank to knock it out because they were trying. They just couldn't hit it. As well as they knew where to put a machine gun down an avenue of approach and stuff like that. Maybe they weren't as proficient as far as like having the discipline to know when to shoot stuff like that. Now, like, you know, when we closed in on them in that back clear that I was talking about and where the combat went from a hundred to hundreds of meters down long avenues of approach out in the open in a city environment to now we're shooting at each other from 10, five, two meters and in and stuff like that. Obviously that's a little bit easier for them. Yeah. You know, so as far as proficiency, yeah, like, I don't think they were necessarily like fighting probably a near peer or anything like that. What as well like- as they can leverage indirect, well, they they did have some indirect fire capabilities, but they just don't have, they didn't have the firepower that we could yeah. bring to bear against them, you know? Was it like fighting a fanatical enemy that at least in your platoon sector didn't give up? It was obviously something that, I don't think I experienced it again, like not even in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, the folks I found that we were fighting, were, they, they were trying to maneuver, you know, they were trying to move to a position of advantage. And then if they couldn't get it, they, they'd move off to live to fight another day, you know. In Iraq, it wasn't so much that. Yeah, it was like they were going to do damage to us and die trying or die trying, you know. There was no stopping them from doing that in a strange way there was a lot of clarity there they 
are going to kill me. They are going to kill me. They're going to try to kill me. In order to prevent that, I have got to kill them, you know, or if I can incapacitate them, then I can incapacitate them. But the weapons I have aren't really designed to necessarily primary incapacitate, right? Like I have a 203 that shoots things that explode, and then I have a 556 rifle, you know? So, in a way, just from my perspective, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but in that combat scenario, and maybe in combat in general, there is a sense of, hey, man, almost like a weird mutual agreement, <laughs> you know, like, man, if you get the beat on me, I know you're going to kill me. If I get the beat on you, I'm going to kill you. Are we good? <laughs> you know, like, it's basically, it is that simple. Yeah. And there's some semblance of, I, I, I don't know what, how you would describe it, but just to have your world be that simple yeah. is so unique that you can't capture that anywhere else you know yeah that was my take on it and in a weird in a way i feel like maybe collectively us as a group the marines that were sitting outside of fallujah when we were getting ready to attack when we were sitting in pop fallujah getting ready it's like we we knew we were going to go into this attack i think we had a feeling we knew that we were going to try to kill them they were going to try to kill us and it's almost like they were saying hey if you want some come get some, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And we were just like, all right, here we come. You know, it's like, it's that kind of weird, almost uh primal just thing, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the gazelle running from the lion, <laughs> like the gazelle yeah. knows the lion's going to eat it. Right. And the lion's like, I'm going to run after you. And if I catch you, I'm going to eat you. But if you outrun me, then I'm just going to stop. <laughs> you know? And then you're going to get to live to fight another day. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but yeah, just the whole like, Hey man, if you get the drop on me, you're going to kill me. If I get the drop on you, I'm going to kill you. Those are the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And there's, just, there's no negotiating. You know that that's how they think. And so, in a way, it's like you're like, I kind of respect that. I've heard that. I mean, you you read about it, and I think in memoirs or the accounts of warfighters across history. I mean, I think a lot of uh, a lot of World War II Marines had great disdain and, and even hate for. The Japanese, but I think they also respected the hell out of them for yeah. us as, as fighters. Yeah, that's a gr- that's a great. I think that's a decent analogy in that while the folks that I was fighting and how I viewed them as far as like man, what they're fighting for is so anathema to our values and sure. system and the things that they did to non-combatants are unforgivable. All that said analogous to what you're talking about, the Marines in Japan, it's like, well, yeah, they did all these horrific things, which I totally do not respect, but us, us having that clear contract with each other of mm-hmm. this is kill or be killed. We understand this. Okay. Right. So we're like the person that was across from me, they entered that. So there's some type of like bravery there. There's some type of dedication there that I think that I can sympathize with and understand I don't say I would ever admire some of these folks, but those traits are admirable. There's there's some there's some relatability. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. some yeah. sort of connection that goes beyond ideology. Yeah. You're you're in this as much as I am. Even though yeah. we're on opposite sides, you're dedicated the way I am. Yeah, exactly. And I would say at the time I was I was a lot more in, in the heat of combat. And at the time I was a lot more. Probably 
macho and gung ho about stuff, right? It's mm-hmm. like you know, you're kind of like fuck that and fuck him, right? right, <laughs> you know? right, right. As I've aged and looked back and reflected, there is kind of this weird sense of me like, if I would have said this to me back then, the me back then would have looked at me and been like, shut up, <laughs> right? You know. <laughs> But me now, there is some kind of strange, begrudging, at least acknowledgement of, hey, you know, you entered the same arena I did. I just happened to leave. But at least you had the courage to do it. That's something that I can kind of mildly respect, despite all the other negatives that come with. Right. (laughs) Uh, Makes makes total sense. You finished the back clear of Fallujah. There's a whole lot of fighting up close and personal as a part of that. And the city's finally secured. What does the rest of your time with 1-8 look like? Yeah. After that, we got put in, honestly, the Abu Ghraib. We got put in the base where the Abu Ghraib prison was. Uh, and that all kind of, I think that all, all occurred around the time frame. We yeah, were- vaguely, I want to say that that it did. I got to look that up though. But the, the abuse of prisoners and such. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, just to show you the kind of the disconnect that can happen is, I mean, back here, obviously that was an enormous thing. Um, I'm sure for the upper level leaders in Iraq, that was an enormous thing, but us, like I'm there in Abu Ghraib. I'm not at the prison. I don't handle detainees at Abu Ghraib. I have no clue about any of this. And it's just kind of like, Oh, that's a, What's going on? You, you know? that's, a, that's a thing that's happening. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it, like some people may hear this and think it's callous, but it's just like, you know, your world is so, okay, I got to go to chow. I got to go to sleep. I got to go on patrol, you know, and then somewhere in there I have to survive, you know, <laughs> that occurred. But again, just wasn't really on our radar. We were in Abu Ghraib, which was run by the army. We were a Marine company operating out of their base. And basically we we're just kind of keeping security in the local area around Abu Ghraib. And we did that. Yeah, we did that until 1-8 left. Got on the trucks from there as 1-8's deployment ended, drove back to Al-Assad. And from there, 1-8 departed Iraq and went back to Camp Lejeune while I I stayed in Iraq to go back to 3-4. So as you alluded to, you don't go home, you stay in Iraq, you cross-deck to Lima Company 3-4, you're back with your original battalion. I'll ask the same questions. What led you to stay? You know, what was that? What was that experience like? You've you've been you've been in combat operations for quite some time. So you're you're back at your original battalion. You just kind of walk us through reassimilating. <laughs> yeah. So as far as wanting to stay, some of the same reasons is why I wanted to stay the the first time to go one eight. Obviously, the Fallujah thing was clearly done. So we handled that, but I still knew. A number of the Marines in 3-4. I thought I would probably end up going back to India Company 3-4. And I wanted to go back to those guys and lead them again and look out for the Marines there. Because again, I was like, okay, I think I can be value added to a unit. I think that I can make decisions in combat that can keep us keep us successful and keep us alive. Not that I'm a great tactical leader, but I just I can I can still do something. I can still help. You know? Sure. So Go back to three, four, and they put me in Lima Company instead of India Company, which the first sergeant from India three, four was still the first sergeant from when I was there. And I, he told me later when he ran into me that he, he, he fought, he was, he was like just in an argument with the sergeant major trying to get me to go back to India three, four, but they put me in Lima because I guess Lima was a little bit shorthanded. Mm-hmm. 
And so back to assimilating, same, same thing. So what I noticed was, you know, I showed up to 3-4 when we were in the States. I had to kind of prove myself. Showed up to 1-8 when we were in Iraq. Had to prove myself. Showed up to 3-4 again to an entirely different company, a new team, new people. They don't know me. So, you know, I have to do the whole, like, proving myself again. And at that point, I was like, you know, this is kind of getting old now. <laughs> I was going to say, were you, were you kind of tired of it at this point? Yeah. I mean, you just, you'd finished Fallujah, you'd done operations since then. Yeah. Yeah. So I was was like, maybe it's time to, maybe it's time to move on. Another thing hit me when I was like, maybe it's time to go back to America, right? Was we were watching, I think it was Napoleon Dynamite and one of the like screening rooms they had on Fob Fallujah, one of the random times that we got to go back to the rear to kind of relax and eat hot food. And I'd been in Iraq so long that there you always had your weapon on you all the time. And I was watching Napoleon Dynamite and one of the characters gets out of a chair and like walks out of a room or something. And I remember randomly thinking to myself, where's his weapon? And it's when it hit me, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like I've been here a little bit too long. This has become too normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I went, I went to Lima 3-4, and at that point is when we had shifted to the to coin, basically, to where it was, we're staying in the towns, we're staying out away from fobs, amongst the people, patrolling all the time. You're either patrolling on security or on rest slash quick reaction force, and that's what we did. And that was another thing. It was, man, that was physically just taxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't as bad as what I described before when we went to Karma and had to just stay patrolling all day, every day. Mm-hmm. But it was it was pretty physically demanding as far as just, man, you were either on post or you were on a patrol or you were asleep, but also first up for if anything needed to get done, you had to go do it. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're supporting somebody or what have you. During that point in time, because three fours AO was a, was in the Fallujah area after we had already gone through and cleared everything and mm-hmm. all that, so it really wasn't that kinetic at that point. Like I don't think we, I think there were a few ID, there were a few ID strikes and stuff like that, but there really wasn't much direct fire contact with the enemy. It was just a lot of patrolling, a lot of patrolling at night. We were integrating the Iraqis a lot more. Like mm-hmm. I would go on a patrol with just my fire team. I would just take my fire team and lead the patrol and then I'd pick up a fire team of Iraqis on the way out and we would just go on patrol together, you know? And we just, we just did that for months. I was just going to say, what was it like working with the Iraqis? All right. Cause prior to this, it sounds like all of your operations were Marines. Yeah. Yeah. Working yeah prior, Marines, to this, Marines. prior to this, I, we did have some Iraqis integrate with us occasionally, yeah. which a lot of times it was just Marine pure. But pulling in the Iraqis as much as we did when I was with Lima 3-4, initially, we obviously weren't very impressed with their like discipline capabilities, stuff like that. But very quickly, they, they changed. You know, they became more proficient. They seemed to be better led. The soldiers seemed to be care more. You know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was just a natural process there. But I found I found initially, yeah, you know, I was kind of like, man, the Iraqis, like, are these guys going to be able to hold their own here? Like, what's going on? But within a very short time, I was like, man, actually, like, I respect these guys. These guys, they're in it. Like, they care, you know? And it ended up 
becoming, I mean, like I don't keep in contact with these guys, but we all started kind of forming friendships, which was interesting, but yeah, ultimately, and, and as I left Iraq and obviously as Iraq descended into what occurred, you know, after we pulled, after we kind of pulled out and then, you know, ISIS and stuff like that, I've, I've always found myself thinking about those guys and just like, man, I really hope that it didn't end bad for them. Yeah. You know? And that was another thing that struck me about some of the sectarian violence that occurred in Iraq because a lot the units that I was working with, they were kind of a mixture of religion, you know, Sunni and Shia. Sunni Shia yeah. Sometimes, sometimes even Kurds and oh. like all in the same platoon, right? And right, so I was right. like, sectarian. What? I, these guys didn't strike me that they would do that, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, the, the Iraqis overall, I found myself leaving there, you know, wishing I could have served them a little bit better, and then and then wish hoping that they that they <laughs> that they would survive and do yeah. well. I wanted to go back to. Fallujah, your experiences there, the effect that battle had on you. So part of the reason why you stayed in Iraq was you had this feeling that Fallujah was going to pop off again and you wanted to be there to to help. What was it like finishing that battle? Did you get any sense of catharsis? Did you get any sense of relief or hey, I I came here to to help with this thing and I and I did and more generally, how did that battle affect you as far as your understanding of the nature of warfare, the character of war? How has it influenced, if it has influenced you going forward as a platoon commander, company commander, field grade officer? Yeah, that's a good question. So as far as a catharsis, I want to say that I, I did, I don't know if I necessarily really did feel like Ha! Ah, mission accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think there was kind of that dis- that distinct feel. I think that more and more looking back on it as I've, as I've reflected on what happened there and what I what I took part in. I don't know if catharsis is the word, but I I look back on it more and more with a strange sense of pride and and also just that I was in a weird way lucky to get to participate. Mm-hmm. I would probably have a different opinion if I was horrifically wounded yeah. in that situation, you know, which is why I guess I'm hesitant to say those things because a lot of people were, you know, but even with that, like, I think that all of us that participated in that battle can be, proud of what we did, proud of what we stood for, and proud that we were able to fight through and overcome what we faced. So that's my response to that. As far as how the experience impacted me, like, you know, as a platoon commander, then company command time, now as a field grade officer, and then military professionally, I think it's given me some perspective on some of the things that we talk about and that we all try to learn as military professionals or that many of us try to, I think it gave me some experiences and maybe even insights when I was a platoon commander in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a different fight than Iraq. Definitely. The squad leaders that I had in Afghanistan were all very impressive guys, you know, like they were more skilled 
and better trained than I was as a squad leader, a team leader, 100% and more experienced mm. as far as they'd all had multiple combat force and stuff like that. But I think I could potentially maybe kind of understand what guys were going through and stuff like that mm-hmm. to, to a degree. Yeah. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if it was any better than the next person, but that's what I used it for as well as having been through Phantom Fury. I think that I was maybe a little bit better, like mentally prepared for some of the hardships that we would probably experience, you know, the feelings of loss and stuff like that. And then, uh, uh, and by loss, I mean, my platoon, we didn't, none of my Marines got killed. I had a few guys get wounded pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you know, you got to, you still have to continue the fight. Like you still have to continue to operate. So there is resilience involved with that. You know, your, your buddy was here and now he's not either because he was killed or because we had a medevac him. And the last thing you saw of him, he was screaming. You know? mm-hmm. So there's resilience involved with that. And having been through some of that before, I think I, I just used it to try to stay attuned to some of my guys. Like there were a few guys that, you know, experiencing those type of things and loss. Like I, I think I did a decent job of, uh, letting them have some, okay, Hey, we need to kind of like dial it back for this Marine and let them, let them kind of cope for a second or for a, a day or two. Right. And then yeah, yeah. get them back in the fight. And then from what I found that worked as far as going into company command time. I mean, I tried to use some of my experiences to, to try to put some things in perspective for guys. Like for example, you know, my platoon, like I said, took a lot of casualties to where we became kind of a platoon in name only. And some of our training events we did when I was a company commander, we were very shorthanded on people. And some of the Marines were like, well, this is kind of weird, you know, or like, this is, this seems unrealistic. Like my squad's only five guys or my squad's only six guys. And so I pitched them like, Hey guys, I was fighting in combat with a squad of five people. Yeah. Like the, the war's not just going to stop because you're not T.O. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't have your full table of organization. You're going to have to keep fighting and or reorganize or figure out how to fight with what you've got to win. And then as, as a, you know, as a field grade officer and some of the things we've been talking about with some of the new concepts and the ways we are looking at the military, right? Like, uh, and as, as a guy who's on an army base and working through teaching army students, you know, their big thing is large scale combat operations, large scale combat operations what does this look like now? Like, what do we need to be prepared for? And in a way, sometimes I say to him, like, yeah, hey, I have not been in a war against, you know, the Russians or the Japanese, or the, but I was in a city and we were doing fire for effects with conventional artillery across the street from me. You know, like that seems like it's probably an element of large scale operation or large scale uh, combat operations, you know, like took a lot of casualties. We keep saying that's going to happen in large scale combat operations. Mm-hmm. I experienced that, you know, so, and by that, I don't mean, I'm not dismissing what they're saying. I'm just saying like, we actually do have some resident knowledge that we can leverage here. You know, we shouldn't, we don't need to just deep six what many people have experienced that are walking around in this organization. I think that we're all learning it for the first time. Well, we're not. There is also the element of combined arms and you're fighting with tanks next to tanks. You're getting supported by army units. You're getting support from the air, from, you know, various uh, services, agencies. I'm curious, what did you take away from Fallujah with respect to fighting alongside armor? 
<laughs> you set me up, Damien. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I found it very useful. <laughs> yeah, I, I found it very useful. The tanks could take a beating, and they provided really responsive and effective firepower. You know, what I would also say though is like we don't need to say that what I experienced is going to necessarily be replicated in perpetuity in the future. Sure. You know, sure. so when you look at the progression of all these anti-tank munitions, like could we do what we did in Fallujah, what going on 20 years ago, you know, right, right. today with those tanks? Like, will we really have them where we were putting them today? Right. Pro, you know, I would say, I would say absolutely not. You know, I would not do that. You know, the idea that the enemy would have potentially in-laws or a proliferation of javelins or something along those lines, man, I would be very reticent to pull tanks up to where they could be exposed to that. But when I was in Phantom Fury and in Fallujah, the enemy just didn't have very robust anti-tank capabilities. So we knew that we could employ them like that. True. What was it like to see the war in Iraq evolve over, you said, I think about a year and a half? By the time you left, did it seem like the coalition was winning? When I went to Iraq with 3-4, the tenor was, we're going to be very non-confrontational. You know, uh, we did stuff like, and you're in cat vehicles, they wouldn't have toes in the cradle. You know, they uh, we would leave the wire condition three, you know, so that's around not in the chamber. You know, you had a loaded magazine in your weapon, but you would not have a chain around in the chamber. Don't point your muzzle at people, stuff like that. After Operation Vigilant Resolve, pretty significant fighting around the city of Fallujah. Yeah, we're condition one. Toe is going back in the cradle, you know, like all all that stuff. So we adapted to that as far as like, okay, we actually do need to be postured for contact. Okay. Yeah. Weapons will be oriented outboard while we travel. We're not just going to be kind of riding like we're riding in the back of the seven ton to go to the rifle range or something. As far as our operations go, it fluctuated from where, yeah, hey, we're going to stay kind of away from the Iraqi population centers and we will just go in, do things, you know, patrols, maybe a like coordinate search, plan things like that, and then come back to our base. Mm-hmm. It went from that and trying to stay kind of hands off and out of the Iraqis because my understanding was the the commanders at the time, I want to say it was like General Abizade and Lieutenant General Sanchez, that was how they viewed it. They were like, hey, we need to stay out of the Iraqis' business. We need to stay away from them. We don't want to be seen as occupiers, yada, yada, yada. So like light footprint, that was the term, light footprint, light footprint, light footprint. And then as I went to 3-4 the second time when they came back to Iraq and I and when I left, that's when it was like, okay, hey, we are getting waist deep <laughs> in the Iraqi town centers. Uh, we're going to get to know the people around. We're going to get to know all these people. Like we're going to understand the environment and everyone that's there. We're going to build relationships. Da 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 da. The coin thing, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I did feel like we were making gains. Yeah, I definitely did. I remember talking to Lieutenant Ackerman. He probably doesn't remember this story because we we're talking about it in our patrol base outside of Haditha at 2200 at night while I'm manning an upgun weapon system. And he's like eating an MRE and he just happens to be by me. Right. And I'm just like, sir, if we're only in their town patrolling it, you know, a few hours a day, how are we ever going to be able to find who 
is the enemy, really. And Lieutenant Ackerman doing a good job as a Marine officer and toeing the line. He's like, we're trying to keep light footprint. We want the Iraqis to take the onus of their own security. We don't want to be viewed as occupiers, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, I kind of, I kept pushing back on him that a few times. You know, like, but I mean, why would they ever like, hey, Marines walking by, the bad guys are all over there. Oh, and then you leave in two hours, so they'll just come murder me later. You know, like, why would anybody do that? And him and I went back and forth for a while, but it was just like, ah, we're talking about things that we can't control anyway. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, and then sure enough, <laughs> so I'm leaving Iraq is when it's like, I was like, where did this light footprint go? Like, and now I'm living in an Iraqi home. Right. <laughs> this went from one end of the spectrum to yeah. the other, it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think as I left, I think as I left, that's where, like, yeah, we were making games. We had an understanding of, the, the neighborhood, the environment, we knew the people and stuff like that. I mean, how we were all, almost starting to be able to speak Arabic and yeah. stuff. So that was my, that was my experience. And that was my, my take on it. What's your advice for current and future fire team and squad leaders on preparing for and winning in combat? So for team leaders and squad leaders, I think what's essential for them is they need to understand, know the capabilities of their weapon systems that are organic to their teams and squads. They also need to have a pretty good understanding of any weapon system that could get attached to their squad, right? A machine gun, a missile, things of that nature, engineers, stuff like that. So knowing and understanding those things, those capabilities, they also need to know and understand their people. Where are they weak? Where are they strong? How can they most effectively employ them? And then the biggest thing I think really they need to do is solve problems with their unit, you know, so solve tactical problems with their unit. As I referred to earlier in my time in Iraq, we trained in Japan. We trained in a tent camp in Kuwait, and then we were patrolling the streets of Iraq. You know, we never got to patrol the streets of Iraq and rehearse before we were patrolling the streets of Iraq. However, we had basically, it felt like a zero learning curve. You know, because we had put ourselves in various situations, various environments, worked through tactical problems and solved them. And that gave us enough of a database or a hard drive to then apply it creatively to these new situations we found ourselves in. If you do that, you will have the ability to survive the initial contact, probably overcome and defeat your enemy, and then continue adapting Mm-hmm. There and then you will just become more and more effective and more and more lethal and more and more dangerous on the battlefield. So I say all that with it as a cautionary tale because what I've seen sometimes with small unit leaders is, you know, for example, in in Hawaii, like it's Hawaii, you know, it is not 29 palms, but that's where we're going to go to do ITX. But people seemed somewhat reticent to get out and just do these things at small unit levels because they're like, oh, we're Hawaii. Like, we're not, this isn't the desert. Why would we prepare for that here? You know, stuff like that, yeah. or even, even uh, room clear, clearing or mount environment. It's like, you can clear your barracks rooms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what we were doing in Japan, as I described it earlier. And that'll give you more than enough to then go, go into new situations and be able to overcome. Mm-hmm. So, so again, the biggest piece is take your unit solve tactical problems, fight through tactical problems, let people work through the friction, do it physically. I mean, yeah, you can sit around and do a TDG. That's fine. That's good. But you also need to get kitted up, get your weapon, and then just go out there and solve a problem with your folks. Mm -hmm. And that will help you tremendously. And you will be set up for success. 
Yeah. And it sounds like you're able to adapt fairly quickly because you already have this foundation in solving tactical problems in the real world on actual terrain. And you're able to to make that that jump from Japan to Iraq without too much challenge? Or did you find that there were times, hey, it, it took a lot of of learning and failure to to adapt? Or was it generally fairly smooth for you guys? I would say it was it was fairly smooth, you know. Again, folks that probably shared the same time with me maybe listen to me and be like, what are you talking about? Don't you remember that this was terrible or we screwed this up? But no, I really think that by us doing training the way we did and preparing the way we did, it was all fine. Like there was nothing that came our way. I I personally feel that there was nothing that came our way that we weren't confident we could overcome. Uh, walking around there and my battalion commander when I was in two five said something along these lines, but walking around there, at least in that environment, it's not it, most of the times it wasn't like a large scale combat op type thing. It was, you know, point, but as, as a fire team or a squad moving around the AO, I at no point felt like I would walk into a situation that I could not handle. You yeah. Know? Now, I, I'm not saying that we wouldn't walk into like a terrible ambush and all get annihilated <laughs> or something like that. Like that, that could have happened, right? Sure. The enemy would have had to like be so overwhelmingly powerful against us that, yeah, we just, we weren't, we weren't reckless. And I don't want to sound like we were just, you know, devil may care like bravado crazy or anything like that but it's just as i was moving around with my people either as a team leader or squad leader and i feel like my people felt this too like we all had the confidence that no matter what occurred we would be able to fight through it Mm -hmm. be able to win i mean isn't that the goal of of training of, of education right to try to prepare for those moments yeah yeah and 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 to do it like not in a reckless way right 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 where your your confidence is well founded mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right it is founded in the fact that i know i can employ this weapon i know i can employ my unit and i know that we can be and are more deadly than the people we are facing sure. yeah um, it's not you know self-aggrandizement and, and hot air like you yeah. can you actually you can do it yeah the next thing I say is probably going to strike people as strange, but, and it's probably, and it's probably weird for people now, right? Cause a lot of people weren't in combat. A lot of small unit leaders were not in combat. A lot of small unit leaders may not have even been trained by people that were in combat now. And that's all okay. But we have to keep thinking and talking about combat, right? One thing I did with my Marines and I don't know if it meant much to them. I don't know if they cared, but I think it meant a lot to me, which then led to checks I had to cash, was I talked to my Marines about, hey, in combat, like basically if you are hurt, we will get you out. We will get you out of here. We will not abandon you. We will all get you. And like that is my blood oath to you, you know? I think I drew more like a specific scenario of like, hey, if you like, for example, if you were wounded lying in the street and we we are and the street is like swept with a machine gun fire, we are not going to abandon you. We are going to figure it out. We will fight off the enemy and we will come get your ass and we will get you evacuated. We will not leave you out there to die, you know, and I found that. Just saying that that very frankly to my Marines, I hope that they were like, okay, cool. This guy cares. <laughs> right? Like this guy is 
a leader that I want to follow. Mm-hmm. But in a strange way, and so on some occasions, that scenario that I was describing kind of happened <laughs> a few a few times. And I was like, well, I said I was going to do this. I got to do it now. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. kind of like in a weird way, like start writing checks to your Marines that make you like you've already made the decision before this terrible situation occurs, you know? Mm-hmm. So doing those things, talking about that with your folks, making all those like hard decisions ahead of time. So that way in the moment you will respond in the proper way. I think I've had this conversation with other people where I've told them like, look, man, in these horrifically bad moments where the fear is the highest and the chaos is the highest you and everyone else, you're probably not going to respond like Captain America. (laughs) You know, you're probably not like, this is the moment I was waiting for. (laughs) Let's go boys. You know, like you're probably going to be like, Oh shit, we got to do this. Okay. Let's go. (laughs) You know, like here, let's hope we solve this one. Here we go. You know? So like, that's how ugly it is. And that's why you have to think about these things, commit yourself to these courses of action before you are in the moment. Because, man, when you're in the moment, who knows? <laughs> you yeah. could be the one that's like, now what? Leave them out there. I'm good. Right? Like, don't think that you are just some super brave fucking person. You don't know. Yeah. So I'm assuming you've served with your fair share of platoon commanders, platoon sergeants, squad leaders. What did the most effective leaders in these categories do? What set them apart? Huge things were like with Lieutenant Ackerman, as I said, I knew this guy, he knew his job. I had, and to the credit of the United States Marine Corps and their investment in entry-level training, specifically of officers, the basic school, infantry officer courses, the one obviously I can relate to as an infantry officer. Every platoon leader, every platoon commander, sorry, I've been working for the army. I said platoon leader, you got me. Every platoon commander that I've had as an enlisted Marine, they knew what they were doing. They knew how to employ their platoon. They were tactically proficient and sound. Uh, In many cases, they were the best tactically Marine, like tactically proficient Marine in that platoon, right? Spinning off from just being proficient and employing their unit. As far as book-wise, knowledge-wise, but then you've got to take that and be able to apply it to the human beings that are there, right? And these human beings are all different. They're all motivated by different things. Some of the Marines are there because they're like, you know what? This is the only option I think I have to better myself. So this is why I'm here. Some of them are there because they're you know, a fifth-generation Marine. Some of them are there because they super duper want to get there. And then some of them are there because they're lying to themselves and others that the recruiter lied to them. Okay. Because the recruiter didn't lie, man, you signed the contract, buddy. So you got to understand those people and then how do you motivate them? And, and by that, I don't mean you're not going to get all these people to be super enthusiastic. Probably. I mean, ideally, yeah, you want them to be super enthusiastic. You want to be the guy that's just like, everybody's rowing hard and they all love you and they love the unit and stuff. But I mean, some guys may never get there, but as long as you get them from like zero to 50%, man, you've made an incredible improvement. And so with that comes having a somewhat intimate knowledge of your folks, you know, like a platoon commander, a squad leader, a team leader should be able to tell you 
where their Marines from, who their family members are, what do they like doing? What are they doing this weekend? It's things like that. Like I feel that that is what is very important in knowing your people. And then there's an element there of genuine caring about them and caring about someone is not taking your unit on a PT session and the guy that's fallen out, you berating that person, right? It should be more like, Hey, I see this person's weakness. Hey, Marine, I see your weakness. We need to come up with a way to fix this, right? We need to come up with a way to get you better. Now that's not lovey and touchy feely. That conversation doesn't need to be, Oh, come here. Let me take the the thorn out of your paw type thing. It can be like, look, man, you are not executing what we need of you in this unit. So what do we got to do to get you there? And then you helping that person through the problem because ideally you probably already have an idea of how to get them there. And so as, as far as just a simple answer to that question yeah, is, again, knowing the weapon systems in your unit, knowing how to employ them, knowing how to employ them in all kinds of environments and situations and dynamically, and then knowing the human beings applying those weapon systems mm-hmm. and giving a crap about them. During your time in Iraq, did you see any instances of the concepts of warfighting MCDP-1 applied and applied especially well? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say so. I mean, when you talk about trust tactics, when you talk about surfaces and gaps, uh, like when I talked my story earlier about in Fallujah, you know, we, we adapted and instead of slamming south during the day, we just strong pointed, killed the enemy we could, use night, gap, boom, exploited, right? To where the enemy was having trouble orienting on us and, and reacting, you know? So there's two simple ones right there. And then when I was saying trust tactics and, and decentralized execution, I let my Marines employ their weapon system, right? Like whenever we did something, it was just, hey, we got to do this. They just went and did it. And that's a, just the individual and fire team level my squad leaders letting me go do what I need to do within the construct and understanding of what our task purpose is, as well as the platoon's mission. And then the company's company commander's intent. We just went and did those things. The company commander was not supervising us, right? By, by that, I mean, he was not standing over Corporal Long's shoulder, ensuring that we were doing these things, or my squad leader's shoulder, ensuring that we were doing these things. He trusted us to go do them. He knew that he could say these things and we would execute. Same thing with my comment earlier, as far as we got to where I knew I could move and someone would be covering me. They knew they could move and they knew that I would cover them. Those types of things that are talked about in MCDP-1, they're absolutely there. As well as, you know, the the nature of warfare that it talks about. The fog of war. Where are the bad guys? (laughs) I I swear, the only bad guys I saw there I probably only saw, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 12 of them in the flesh, like alive. And then the rest of them were dead, you know? So trying to find them, trying to orient on their position was incredibly difficult the entire time. And just fighting through that was, is so hard to describe trying to be like, where is this coming from? Okay. Now I've found where it's coming from. Now, how do I orient friction? Like now, how do I orient all the people around me to where it's coming from? So fighting through those things, going through all that. Yeah, I definitely saw this play out in front of me. And you could go, you could go on and on and on with MCDP-1 applied to just, just this one little battle that is nowhere near the scale of like an Iwo Jima or an Okinawa or anything like that. 
That concludes part one of our interview with Dean covering his enlist experiences. Part two, where we'll discuss his time as an officer, will be coming out in a few weeks. Thanks so much for listening.